Hey everybody, it's Dale Jr. back again for the Dale Jr. Download podcast mm. on Dirty Mo Media with my co-host Mike Davis. <laughs> we almost went guest. I you? did. <laughs> Good to be here, Dale. Yes, thanks for being here. Um, uh, this show here is presented by Bristol Motor Speedway. You dang straight it is. And we have a great guest who has had a ton of success at Bristol Motor Speedway, and that's Rusty Wallace coming on the show here in a bit. Uh, we're going to tell you how Mike keeps those giant, amazing choppers of his <laughs> shiny oh, and white. I mean, are they really giant, Dale? I mean, are we, are we, are we exaggerating I'm, a little can bit? Can I just say that I'm very envious, envious <laughs> of your teeth? But you use Quip to keep those things bright and shiny and yeah. white. We're going to tell you how you do that and uh, use the promo code Dale Jr. I don't do that, but I will now. D-A-L-E-J-R. <laughs> well, yeah, well, it, it must be an expensive... Uh, situation for you no it's actually not With so much real estate <laughs> um so maybe this quip thing is right up your alley we're going to talk about martinsville this past weekend I had a couple races there we got stories of throwing stuff at people mm. and more about to do that to you you know because there was a lot of things thrown at bristol motor speedway even at you at me yes yeah i remember so, that before we get to uh the rest of the show obviously we're, we're going to talk about one of our partners pristine auction mike yeah I love Pristine Auction. It's an online sports auction website where you can bid on and win authentic sports memorabilia from the comfort of your home. PristineAuction.com. They offer daily auctions. All bids start at one buck. So going to start out free and easy, man. It might get a little expensive, but it might not. You might be able to sneak in there while everybody's sleeping and get some great deals. There's also some other formats. They have a 10-minute auction, which is a lot of fun. Items will pop up just for ten minutes, and so those I think are the better steals, wouldn't you imagine, Mike? I mean, he's got to be. You got you got to get in there. It's, that's only for people that are on top of their game, and it happens fast, which makes makes it a lot of fun. I enjoy the ten minute auctions. Uh, some of these deals are pretty insane. They guarantee the authenticity of all their items. I've signed for them, so I know that every other person that signed and autographed stuff on Pristine, that's the real deal. There's no fakes. There's no phonies. You can't trust these other sites. You can't trust what you're getting from other places, uh, but you can from Pristine. So, Mike, what's the best part about Pristine? Well, you just mentioned the authenticity, but the fact of the matter is, is they got some awesome stuff on there. I mean, listen, we, we just took ownership of a tombstone shotgun. Oh, and right. when I said oh, authenticity, yeah. listen, you come, it comes with every type of certificate of authenticity that you can imagine. How many about. times are you going to say authentic, authenticity? <laughs> as many, just, as, as many you, times it takes. You're saying it a little more often today because I think because you screwed it up last week. I know you didn't remember the word. Yeah. And you so notice, you're, not, you're not saying that. You notice I didn't say yeah, that. That's right. right. I ain't going to go down you're, that road again. You're doubling down. <laughs> you're doubling down on authenticity. <laughs> yeah. The one I know I can do. Yeah. <laughs> right now, they got a signed Kel Yarborough number 27 die cast. And uh, it's a beautiful piece. It's only $28. That's the car I think that he went over the wall with at Darlington, yep, Darlington Motor yep. Speedway back in the 60s. Go check out pristineauction.com now. You'll be hooked. It's free to register, it's also free to bid. You only pay for the items you win, obviously. That's Pristine Auction, spelled P-R-I-S-T-I-N-E, auction.com. When you register, be sure to select the Dale Jr. Download podcast from the drop-down menu in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That lets them know that we sent you. So we mentioned uh, at the top of the show that this is presented by Bristol Motor Speedway. Folks, got to get off the couch and get to the racetrack. When I would be, uh, when I was a kid, there was one racetrack that I wanted to go to. I didn't care. I mean, I obviously wanted to go to every race, but the one that I did not want to miss was the Bristol night race. The Bristol day race was equally as exciting, but Bristol Motor Speedway was at the top of my list all through my childhood, 
And even today, when somebody says, I've never been to a race, man, which one should I go to? I know to send them to Bristol Motor Speedway because I know that to hook them as a fan full-time for the rest of their life, that's the one that'll do it in the first try. Because you can't have a bad experience. I mean, there's, there's, there's no... There's other racetracks where you're going to, honestly, you don't know if they're going to get the show. Bristol delivers. Dis- Bristol delivers. And I'm telling you, if you have a kid who's not been to a racetrack, yes. you got to take him to Bristol. And there's no better time yes. to do it than in a couple weeks. Right? right? This is the time. Get, get your butt off the couch. Take your kids. Take yourself. Uh, and go to Bristol. I brought my boy in there last year for that modified race. Uh, and the look on his face when he went through – the little archway there to see that stadium was priceless. Right. The right. Food City 500 is at Bristol Motor Speedway on April the 7th. You don't want to miss it. We need all of Junior Nation at Bristol for April and August, so go get your tickets. You can call 844-828-6998 or go to bristolmotorspeedway.com slash DJD. Again, that's 844-828-6998 or bristolmotorspeedway.com slash DJD. During the Food City 500 weekend, we'll be celebrating the 40th anniversary of my dad's first cup win there back mm. in 1979. Uh, only cup rookie to have won a race at the High Banks of Bristol, so the first 10,000 fans through the gate are going to receive a free commemorative poster painted by motorsports artist Bill Patterson, inspired by a photo from the Bristol Motor Speedway archives of Dad's car crossing the finish line with his arm held high across the outside the door. It's a really, really cool shot. Wow. I'm going to want to try to get my hands on one of these as well. Got to be one of the first 10,000 to get there. Right? Yeah, so, so just to be clear, <laughs> he had his arm out the window when he crossed the line? Yeah, well, he's got two arms, one on the Stud. wheel. Stud! That is ah, the man, yes! That is, oh my gosh, you don't see that. Yeah. How could you? There's a window net. Well, he's winning his first race. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to win your first race, oh, God, Bristol is definitely the track to do it. Just a really, really cool item that are going to be available to the first 10,000 fans through the gate. Uh, it's just an exciting weekend for NASCAR. Bristol Motor Speedway always delivers, and uh, I'm glad they're presenting the, 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 the podcast today. Yes. Let's get to our guest, Rusty Wallace. Wallace with a hot four car. Rusty Wallace wins the Valley Day 500 and his first Winston Cup race ever. And it's Wallace to the front. All right, so we've got our guest here, Rusty Wallace. How you doing, Rusty? Everything's good. First time I've been over here. I like your room. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Um, so what are you doing these days? Well, car dealership stuff. A lot car of car dealership stuff. stuff. I remember all, my boss man, Mr. Penske, told me, said, hey, man, you're going to quit driving one of these days. You better have your act together and ready to go. <laughs> I said, I hear you. And so, um, you know, 28 years ago, man, it's been a long time, a long time. My first deal was a Pontiac dealership in Tennessee in uh 
a guy calls me up and says, hey, man, why don't you come over for an autograph session? So I went there, and we had like 1,500 people in line. And then I went to Bristol, and I won the race. And he calls me up, and he said, hey, will you come again? I said, yeah. He said, okay, I'll show up. And he says, hey, man, you know that buddy of yours, Dale Earnhardt? He said, would you bring him too? <laughs> and I said, all right, let me look. And so I called him up, and I said, hey, you want to go to my, uh, the Chevrolet dealership or this Pontiac dealership with me? I think I'm going to buy it or be a partner in it. He says, okay. He said, if you go to yours, if I go to yours, you got to come to mine. I said, all right. So he flew up there, and me and Dale back there 28 years ago doing autograph sessions of my Pontiac dealership. So that's where it started. But uh, then we built more stores. Now we got eight of them up there. And, uh, really? Yeah, I got eight, eight stores. We sell about 16,000 cars a year up there. Wow. And uh, the car business has been my basically my number one deal i love doing i had no idea that you were in the car business that much i know you had a store at one time but oh no that's awesome yeah people get on me all the time so what are you doing what are you doing i said man i've been working the car stuff for a long time we've got uh, a, a beautiful honda dealership a beautiful toyota a brand new nissan a brand new chevrolet a brand new ford Three Kias and a Nissan. Man. How it, spread out are these? Where are they? They're all in Knoxville, Tennessee they're area. all in that Knoxville. All in Knoxville area, yeah. And I just love Knoxville. We have a great time up there. Beautiful airport, great area. Yeah. ton of race fans up there. And it all started with all that uh, winning I did in Bristol. And that's how I ended up in Tennessee. And yeah. so that's, that's basically <laughs> what I do now. But a lot of people hear me on the radio. I, I love working with the guys at Motor Racing Network. Keeps my keeps me involved in the sport. I do 21 races. I'm at um, only the Cup races and only the ISC owned racetracks. So that's what I do. Yeah, man. That, well, how much do you enjoy doing? Uh, you know, I just got into broadcasting last year, and I just wanted something to keep me at the racetrack because I wanted to keep going. You yeah. know, I didn't want to stop going to the racetrack because I love being there, but I needed a reason to be there, and so. What was your reason for getting into radio, and, and is it to just be in the sport and be involved and be well, around it? Well, th- the reason was I, I, I did television for nine years with ESPN and really enjoyed it. And when it came time for the contract in, everybody was bidding. NBC won the bid, obviously. They had all their own guys. And so then my career with television at that point was over. But then I got a phone call from the guys at NASCAR, and I, and I talked to them back and forth, and uh, radio was a fun thing. And so I do a lot of stuff with ISC. And if people don't know what that means, that's the people that mostly own all the racetracks in NASCAR. So I'll go up to Chicago and do their advance work, or I'll go to Watkins Glen, do their advance work. And like this Sunday, I'm the Grand Marshal for the O'Reilly Auto Parts 500 in Texas, and that's an MRN duty. Because they're one of our big sponsors. So you get an invitation to go be the Grand Marshal. And I say, hey, man, uh, you're going to have a good dinner on Saturday night? <laughs> hey, man, you're going to give me a nice shirt? Yeah, okay, I'll do it, you know. It, get, but, feed me and clothe me, and I'm there. That's right. right. Is that what feed Rusty me. Wallace? That's what moves Rusty Wallace. <laughs> well, <does>. yeah. <laughs> but to answer your question, I'm between, you know, the car dealerships are number one. Mm-hmm. Number two is what got me into car dealerships racing. And I don't want to be out of NASCAR. Right. So I love the MRN stuff because it's 21 races. The guys are fantastic. They're super knowledgeable. And, and I love working with them. I really do. And it keeps me at the track. But then not too much at the track. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I like to enjoy myself also. Sure. I've only had a couple opportunities to do radio. And I found, out, I found it to be more challenging than TV. With radio, and you can you can add to this and, and correct what I got wrong, but with radio, you have to sort of paint the picture. You know, there's no visual for people that are listening. And it seems like it's a 
more difficult job or a tougher job to really explain to people what they're see- what you're seeing and and how you know trying to explain the rate in TV. We're just looking at a screen, the same thing that everybody else is at home. We just go, see that on the screen? Yeah, that's pretty cool on the screen. And But with t- with radio and also the baton passing, you know, as you're going around the racetrack and the cars are going around the racetrack and, and they're literally passing it from guy to guy around the racetrack the entire, you know, for an entire run, um, I found that to really be, it was, all, it was not awkward, but it was just challenging. Uh, whereas TV... Uh, you have so many more tools, I guess, and there's just a visual aspect of it seems to be a lot simpler. It's, it's totally two different animals. It yeah. really is, in my opinion. After being in television for nine years and now doing radio for the last, heck, I've done radio now for the last four years in a row. So, uh, yeah, it, when you're doing television, you're looking at what the viewer sees. You don't have to be calling the race because they're already seeing it, right. you know, and you're basically giving com- commentary about you know what you think, you know when they're going to pit and what you would do and stuff like that. Now I still do that in radio because we got the play-by-play guys, uh, Jeff Striegel and Alex Hayden. Right now are play-by-play guys. I'm the race analyst, and so and you talk about passing the baton around the racetrack. That was my biggest concern too. How do you do that, you know? Because MRN is so exciting and so jacked up, and everybody's like. It tells me all the time, I love listening to those voices and how they really paint that picture, you know. And so when I first got put in the booth, I said, how you do it? I said, okay. Dave Moody generally is up in turn one. You got Mike Bagley over in turn uh, three in Daytona. Kyle Ricky off of turn four. And as those cars are coming around and Kyle's done talking off of turn four, it's free game. If you want to pick up right there, pick up. So what I do, I use hand signals. So the other two guys are getting ready to pick up. And, and if I got something, I'll raise my finger and they go, Rusty's got it. Mm-hmm. So off of turn four, you all, every time you hear my voice, it's always off of turn four, most <laughs> all the time, because I pick up after our last corner guy's done. And so it, it, it sounds real complicating, but it's not. It's pretty seamless, you know, when you know when to talk and not to talk. But... Um, I like the radio stuff uh, because MRN's got so much heritage. They've been around for so long. You got guys like, uh, you know, Winston Kelly, who runs the Hall of Fame down there. You've got voices that you hear all the time, like Dave Moody during the afternoon on XM 90 or Sirius 90. Uh, but it, it gives me something to do, keeps me at the track, and lets me talk about something I feel like I know about. And so I'm kind of like you in that. You, you don't want to leave the track, but when you're at the track, you want to have a purpose. And uh, so if you didn't have your, say, well, you don't have your, you got your Xfinity cars. You're there on Saturday, but you're not there on Sunday. But now you're there on Sunday because of, of television. And that keeps you tied to the sport. And that's kind of the one of the things I wanted to do, too. You talked about Dad and you having a friendship. We wanted to get into that at some point. So I guess we could uh, dive right in. When I was a kid, obviously, I was going to the racetrack and watching you guys for a long time. I remember, you know, I was at Bristol. You won your first race. And was around throughout the entire process all the way up till you went in a championship and and then racing against you myself and it seemed like yours uh relationship with your relationship with dad was just always kind of hot and cold like you guys all could bump into each other and be upset for a while and then maybe friends again could you sort of help me understand i guess what that process was like with him and and how it could go from good to bad and back to good well, first of all, I'll tell you, my relationship with your, with your dad was really, really good. And we were exceptional friends off the track. Uh, you know the stories probably. We spent a lot of time in the Bahamas. We spent a lot of time on boats. We spent a lot of time vacationing. 
Uh, I took uh, my oldest son, Greg, out to the old farm, and your dad grabbed a hold of his arm, set him down, taught him how to shoot a gun. You know, and I was over at your dad's shop one night when uh, it was over in Kannapolis, and we're sitting there, and he's building a brand-new bush car back then, it was called. And he's building a brand new one for Daytona, and it was beautiful. And, it was, and he was really bragging about it. And the whole time he's doing that, he's, he's sitting there drinking some Miller Lights. And yeah, back then he did drink Miller Lite. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're going to be friends, but here's one condition. You're yeah. going to have to drink Miller yeah, yeah. Lite. No. He did drink Miller Lite back then. <laughs> and uh, so we're sitting there and he's telling me, and out of the clear blue, he asked me to come over for some reason. I don't know what it was. And out of the clear blue, he says, hey, man, I want to show you this new bow and arrow I have. I said, okay. I'm like, dude, I don't know about this stuff. But, <laughs> so he takes me outside this old building and you know what it looked like. And he, he takes this thing and he pulls his arrow back and he shoots it. And it goes right through the building, and all of a sudden I see his eyes get real big, and he's like, oh, crap, you know. And he, he says, come on. He runs inside the building, and that damn arrow went through the side of the building and right through his brand-new oil cooler for the Daytona, Daytona <laughs> Bush car. And he, he blew his oil cooler out with a bow and arrow. And he's like, ah, yeah, yeah. And I tell that story now and then because it's kind of exciting because that's an that's a off-track uh, picture of what your pop would do, you know. But we were really good friends. We spent a lot of time, like I said, in those Bahamas. And then I'd be down there and I'd come back to the boat, you know, I'd rent and, uh, and I'd go down and stay in the, in the bedroom down there and there'd be a case of Budweiser. He's always screwing with me, you know, always doing stuff like that. <laughs> but, um, and then one day I was winning all them races at Bristol and doing real well. And our, one of our next races to come up was Bristol. And so we're sitting down, we're drinking beer one night in the Bahamas and he goes, he said, hey, man, I need you to, I haven't been running too good at Bristol. Give me that damn setup you use. I said, I'm not giving you no setup. You know, you're crazy. Come on, come on. And I said, and I thought to myself, self, you know, every time I try to help somebody, I give them the setup, but they only use like 70% of it. So you can give it to them, and it's not going to do them any good because yeah. it's going to get filtered out by some crew guys or some engineers or whatever because sure. they're going to say, oh, no, that's stupid, you know. I said, all right. So I got a piece of paper. I wrote it, and I gave it to him. And I, to this day, stand at this desk, sitting at this desk right here. I gave him exactly what I run. We went to Bristol next week, and I won the race. And I think he finished third or fourth or something like that. And I said, you use that whole setup? He goes, no. I, said, no. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, man. You know, but I was honest with him. But he, uh, he did a lot of stuff for me, too. You know, when they started that, 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 the merchandise business, he got me involved in that. And it, it made some good money. And, yeah. and he was a good guy when it comes to that. But we spent a lot of time off the track. But on the track, we had to race each other. And sometimes it got controversial. And sometimes it was like accidental conver or conversation. I'll give you an example. We're, Mar uh, we're at um, Michigan. Now, I'm going to back up a little bit. Sure. I'm at Richmond. And uh, Gordon took me out at uh, Bristol, knocked me off the racetrack. And last lap, he wins. I finished second. I said, okay, to bump and run. And I said, I'm not letting him get away with that. And so well, I rated th three races. I go to Richmond. And there's Richmond and. Um, I find myself a couple laps to go. He's alongside of me. I said, it's your turn, big guy. And I stuck him right in the fence. <laughs> I tore his whole front end clear off his car. He was like, I said, we're even now, okay? And Ava said, he said, yeah, but I didn't wreck your car. I said, well, yours did. <laughs> <laughs> and so then the next week, we go to Michigan. And I'm practicing in Michigan. And your dad and myself found ourselves side by side and going down the front straightaway. I'm the inside car. I hauled off into turn one, and I got loose. And I got loose, and I slid up into him in practice. And I put him right in the wall. Holy smokes, I've never seen him that mad in my entire life. He come flying out of the car, and the first thing that rang out of his mouth, I'm not going to take that crap like you did to Gordon at Richmond. <laughs> That's the first thing he said. Really? He didn't say anything about, 
you know, me and him wrecking. I'm not taking that crap that you did to Gordon. What? Yeah. Uh, and then, and then, the very next time or the next morning, I'm sitting there. I'm dead asleep in my motorhome, and all of a sudden, bang, 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 bang. I hear something beating on the door. I open the door. It's your dad standing there. He goes, "Hey, man, just blow that crap off from yesterday. I'm, I'm over this. I, I'm sorry, dude." I said, "No problem. Okay, that yeah. was it." But he was like that. But we would. And a lot of fans like, oh, man, those guys are in a big rivalry. It's not. Wow. But I would go to those short tracks and win a ton of short tracks. And he would go to Daytona and kick our butt. And he'd go to Charlotte and kick our butt. And he'd go to Michigan. And then I'd go to the road courses and I'd win. And I'd go to uh, – we, we had these different stomping grounds that we wanted. Sure. And then we'd do crazy stuff like Wilkesboro. At Wilkesboro one time, Mr. France uh, Jr. got a hold of us. And we're talking about T-shirts back in the day. And, um, and we went on and on and on about T-shirts and merchandise and stuff. We were having a good time with that stuff back then. It was really all these different paint schemes and all these things was exciting. So we get in a race, and I come off a of turn two, and he bangs me in the back end. And I'm like, what in the world's going on here, you know? So we run like three more laps, and all of a sudden he gets a good, good bite off a of turn two, and bam, hits me in the back end again. And so, man, I got hot. And I said, I've never done this to a driver, but I did it to your dad. And I come off a of turn two, and he hits me in the back, and I slammed the brakes on. I just locked him down. And he then hit me in the back so damn hard, it tore the grill out of his car, tore the whole friend off his damn car. It tore my bumper all off, and I went ahead and finished second in the race, and he had the front end tore off. And then old man France comes down, and he goes, what the hell are you doing out there, man? I said, just selling T-shirts, boss. <laughs> <laughs> and he laughed and went off, and uh, it, we got over it. But we would do stuff like that, but I really respected him. And he uh, he taught me a lot. He made me want to be like him. At times, he made me want to dress like him. Made me <laughs> want to sit in a car all slouched over in a car, you know, and he would take his helmet off and come in after a plug check or something. Uh, Ever make you want to shoot a bow and arrow right through your car? <laughs> no? <laughs> no, no, I didn't do that. I left that up to him, though. I left it because he was really – but that was, that was incredible watching it that night, watching him shoot that dog on oil cooler out of his brand-new car, you know. When did you meet him? Like, where does it start with you and Dale Earnhardt? 1980, Atlanta. I went to Atlanta, oh, yeah. and I tested with Penske. Mm -hmm. I just ran all these ASA races, and I was doing good in the short track stuff. And Penske said, I want to give this kid a, a try, you know. So they put this car together with a guy named Tex Powell and myself and Don Miller. We went down to Atlanta, and we tested, tested, tested. I drove IROC cars, me and Rick Mears, and we tested the crap out of IROC cars. To kind of get my feet underneath, to get my sea legs, you know. So then we put me in that, that 1980 uh, Caprice, and I ran my butt off all day long in that 500, and I finished second, and Dale won the race. Uh, I'm looking at that car behind your head. It's a blue and yellow number two, and that's the car that he won with, and I finished second behind him in. And that's where we first met, and, and he went to me and said, holy smokes, dude, where'd you come from? You know, And I said, I've been in the Midwest, man. I said, where'd you come from? <laughs> you know? and, uh, and then I met him down in Pensacola at Snowball Derby one time. He was running a bush car down there. Had a, was an old Nova with the fender wells all cut out and the tire sticking out about a foot front and rear, you know. And I said, oh, man, I've never seen a guy drive a car that hard in my life. And he was just wheeling that thing. And I had, like, my ASA car, kind of swoopy-looking car. And he had this old boxy car, and he was whooping everybody's butt with that thing. Uh, but I met him at Pensacola. I met him after we finished first and second. And then, uh, then the relationship, the conversation started from there, and it just – and then when I went over and started driving them for the Blue Max guys, those cars were really fast. 
uh, the late Barry Dotson and mm-hmm. Jimmy Maycar and Todd Parrott and all those guys really had those cars. About what year is this? That was 80, that was 86. Okay. 86, 87, 88, 89. And my last year with the team was 1990. And in 90, we won the Coke 600 and we won Sears Point. And then it was over then. So you and Dale were friends. You met in 80, but when did you guys become like Bahama friends? <laughs> I'd say probably... The Bahama stuff, that was probably 90, okay, so 93. 93, I won 10 races that year. And that's when you, your dad and I, I don't know if you're going to, this one of your questions or not, but <laughs> that's <laughs> when we get together at Teledeg and I go, you know, end over end there, you he know. He flipped you. I mean, you, you, no, you no, rolled. Look, I, you rolled. <laughs> I rolled, yeah, but I, I know exactly what happened. I mean, I, it was a big run. We're coming to start finish line. I, I saw him coming. I went down to block him, and I didn't get, get down there quick enough, and I got my left rear corner into his right front fender, and I went, you know, end over end. And then he calls me in the hospital, and he says, hey, man, I, I didn't mean to try to kill you. I said, I know. <laughs> no problem. Then the next week I show up at uh, Sears Point, and the, and the big speaker, hey, Rusty Wallace to the big red truck or to the red truck or Rusty Wallace to the truck. I said, all right. I said, what did I do wrong now? I didn't know I did anything wrong. And I go up there, and Dale's in there with Bill Jr., and he goes, hey, we always go to the Bahamas, and we want you to go with us. And I went, Okay. Wow. I said that sucker's trying to pay me back for killing right. me, you know. <laughs> but it, that we had we we did that for eighteen straight years. Really? Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Yeah. So you know the water bottle incident is one thing that everybody always remembers, and that was after <laughs> I guess at Bristol, y'all got to, the dad got into you and and turned you around and tore your car up. So, so listening to you talk, it sounds like that some of that stuff was were y'all selling. T-shirts? Like, was that really what y'all were doing when no. y'all would go to the racetrack and, and have those kind of things going on? And, no. No. Like, so how did... That's just a byproduct of it. And, yeah. just, and the conversations always arose. We had fun with it, actually, talking about it. That's what I mean, it. yeah. We had fun with talking about, it. yeah, man, we're going to go sell some T-shirts. That was a slogan, you know? And then we get out there and race our brains out, you know? And and the fans were really into it. And, and uh, it was exciting, but... No, man, we weren't just out there selling T-shirts. No, I hope you're not thinking that type of stuff. But it, you got to remember, your pop was the leader of that. He yeah. was the one that started that whole business and, and helped a lot of people. You know, uh, myself, uh, Dale Jarrett, Bobby, uh, Terry Labonte, and Jeff Gordon. And he was the leader of that, him and Fred Wagonhalls. And mm-hmm. so, uh, so yeah, yeah, I, that, a lot of conversation there. But I will tell you – you get on that dog on track, just like you know. These guys, if you want to, if you want to find friends, buddy, you better find your neighbor. Because if you think you're going to have a pile of friends, you know that you got to race against. They might be friends, you think, but when you get on the racetrack, they're trying to steal your money too, man, and they're yeah. trying to whoop your butt. And it gets pretty, gets pretty tough. And my, at least for me, it was. What was the water bottle the? The high point of any uh, incident between you and Dale? Would you say that that was, is rough as it got can i tell you how that happened true story yeah i'd love to hear it <laughs> all right i'm gonna tell you how that happened true story we're on pit road gordon has been kicking our ass he's kicking your dad's ass he's kicking my ass and and your dad was sick of it and i was sick of it and that particular day at bristol i qualified really well i think like third and your dad qualified i think it was fifth and Gordon was on the outside of us, I think, on the start of the race. And he come, he, your dad come up to me and said, let's do this. And I said, what's that? He said, let's just get this sucker out of the way and check out and get gone. Because that was one of my good tracks, and that was your old man's good track. Not so much for Gordon back then, but he said, let's just, let's just punt this kid and get gone. 
He said, I'm sick of him. I said, all right. And punt him, man, just kind of rough him up a little bit and kind of hamper. Because we could do that back then. You root him out. Yeah, root him out a little bit and get going. So I come up. We get about 10 laps in a race, and I come off a of turn two, and I get loose, and he's right on my tail. Your dad is, you know. We're like, we're like bumper to bumper, man. We were rolling. We're not getting it done, you know. We're honking through that field, you know, and getting next lap we're going to lead the race, you know. I come off a of turn four, and I get loose, and he hits me in the ass. And it, it wasn't his fault. It was probably my fault for getting loose, you know, because we were so tight. And I go spin it around, and I hit the wall, and then I go limp, limp that damn thing around the whole race, you know. Yeah. I'm frustrated, and, and I get over there, and, um, and my son, Greg, walks up to me with just a regular bottle of water. And I was hot and sweating. He gives me the bottle of water. I'm drinking the water, and, and I start walking down. Your old man, he was down there because him and Terry Labonte just got into it coming off of turn four. Well, I think Labonte won the race. Dale's sitting down there, and he's got a whole pile of people around him. And I'm mad. And also, I started walking down. And I was gonna, what I was thinking was, we had a deal, dude. What are you doing? <laughs> what the hell are you doing? We had a deal. You're the one that started this whole thing, you know. You're sick of Jeff Gordon. You had it with him. Let's dump his ass and get going, you know. <laughs> And so I started walking down there. Greg goes, what are you doing, Dad? What are you doing? I said, I'm going down there talking. Oh, come on, Dad. Don't do that. Don't do that. I keep on walking down there, and I see him, and he's about 10 foot away from me. I said, hey. No response. I said, hey. No response. I took that bottle. I went, Phew. I slung that bottle to get the response. And I meant to hit him like in the shoulder, but I hit him right in the center of the forehead. <laughs> I hit him right in the forehead, and it was game on. He just blew through that crowd and came over. Said, What's wrong? I said, I said, what? I said, what the hell's all that about, man? You knocked me in the back, and I got to limp around to him or crawl to hell. I said, I'll tell you what, I won't forget it. I won't forget what you did to me at Teledag either. And he goes, you know what? I won't forget it either. We're blah, 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 blah. Then the next morning, here comes the phone call and the talk. Hey, man, forget about that bullshit. I'm sorry about all that. I said, <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. And that's how it went. You know, it's just that type of relationship. But at that particular point, man, I, you know, he had it. He could not take that Gordon stuff, that young kid coming in kicking our asses. And he was. Jeff was just putting it on us, boy. And yeah. we were sick of it. You, just, you actually cleaned up that conversation because we were watching that uh, video just the other day. That conversation had a lot more color in it. You did a nice job cleaning it up a little bit. Well, uh, I, I just – Yeah, because you guys so, – So you could tell that, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> but, like, you know, now, there were no punches thrown. No. But we, I, I want to tell you something. J.R. Rhodes was in between you guys. J.R. Rhodes being Dale – uh, Dale's guy and JR tells a really good story from his vantage point where he said afterwards Dale got on to him a little bit and he said JR always leave me a hand because I guess JR was holding him back and basically wrapping him up although <laughs> Dale Earnhardt had like there was a couple times where he kind of like tapped you know it does something on your face. I don't know. Like, I don't even know if you, there was a big crowd. It was chaos. But I got to go back and check that one. I haven't seen it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like he kind of goes up like a little love tap. Not, not, a, not a slap. Not Pinch a hit. Cheek. Yeah. yeah kind of yeah, like yeah. that. It, maybe like friends would do. But, uh, but, but Dale Earnhardt said to JR after it was over, always leave me a hand. Just in case. <laughs> just you in never case. know that, yeah, Rusty. Right. Right. Rusty may just swing one one time. No. <laughs> there was, so I got a picture of the car. I'll show it to you. It's an awesome picture, too. Yeah. Let me see. Here it is. So, <laughs> all right, Bahama friend, you had his number with a big X through it on your car. A week after Bristol. Now that can't be a show car. Now that's got to be your car. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't. Honestly, I, I promise, I don't remember that. I don't remember that. Yeah. I do know one thing. That would not have been something that I would have promoted and said to do. Yeah. 
Oh man, it's, I think it's really interesting that back because I did yeah. that too. Like, and I, I had I had a I had a Calvin pissing on this guy's initials <laughs> no on my way. car after he spun me out the week before at, at uh, Myrtle Beach. So I mean, I I thought that that kind of stuff was kind of commonplace. And well, the sardine story—that was you and Dale, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. maybe that was just a prank. Maybe that was just a just a fooling yeah. around type I, thing. That's what I always took it as: is when you'd see that kind of stuff, it was basically just jabs. It was just fun jabs <laughs> between the teams. I've never seen, you know, I've never seen individual. Your dad ran in a pack. It never was him doing it. Yeah, it was him with you know Kirk Shelmerdine or or Chocolate or all these guys in this pack, and they're all like. Doing this thing, to, <laughs> doing this thing together. I'll never forget when I get yeah. in the damn car at uh, Darlington, and I get in my car and it stinks so bad I can't see straight, you know. And I get in and I sit down and I feel like I'm sitting in a big old mush. And I get out and I like what in the world? And I pick the seat cover up and it's full of sardines. And I back out and I turn like this, and it's not him standing there by himself. There's like eight of them behind him, like a football team, you know. They're like a football team backing them up. Or look what we just did, you know. So the sardine story is true. Oh, yeah, it's true. And how'd you get him back? Uh, I stole the steering wheel the next week at Bristol. When Bristol comes up again, we're getting ready to go. He's back there holding court, and we used to stick our steering wheels on the roof of the cars. And uh, and so he's over there just going on and on and on, and I just reach up and take a steering wheel off his hood, off the roof of his car, and I just walked around real quiet. Nobody saw me. Nobody saw me tuck a damn steering wheel off a car. <laughs> I took the steering wheel, popped off the Velcro, off the, you know, the, well, no, we didn't have Velcro then. So I took the wheel and I put it in my car. And um, you went out on track? No, I'm sitting there on pit road getting ready to start the race. Yeah. Oh, shoot, the no, race. Yeah, we're getting ready to start the race. And I'm sitting in the car, you know, and, and they're all buckling down and all that. And I'm just looking in the mirror of the car and I'm looking and all of a sudden I see panic going on. They're all going ape shit. You know, there's everybody's going nuts and where's the wheel? You got it. No, I don't have it. Where, you got it. No, no. And they're, going, <laughs> they're going nuts. I mean, it's just getting frantic. They're freaking out. We're getting ready to say, gentlemen, start your engines in the doggone Bristol 500. And damn, Dale Earnhardt doesn't have a steering wheel. <laughs> you know? And he's just going, to, going crazy. And finally, I reached up. I took the wheel and I went, oh. And he goes, oh, man, you got me on that one, you know. I said, no more sardines in my seat, dude. <laughs> yeah, that was that's epic. That's epic. A true story. Why did he put sardines in your seat? Just because? Because him and I are going for the championship, and he was just screwing with me all year long, trying really? to rattle me. Yeah. Holy cow. It sure was, yeah. Sardines yeah. in the seat, man. Did I you guys ever apologize to each other for any one thing? Like, like, did anything ever go across the line that you're like, I'm sorry, that was wrong? Close as it came was when him and I got together at Michigan, and it was, right. it's not not it's not a hey like you might do nowadays. It's it was it wasn't a man. You know what? I'm really sorry about that. That was just a poor decision. It's my fault. I take the blame. His his you know saying I'm sorry. Is, hey man, I'm over that. <laughs> what about you? you <laughs> hey man, I'm over that. You you okay? You, you okay with that? Yeah, I'm okay with it. Okay, bye. <laughs> that's it. That's how that went. That'll know? do. <laughs> You're talking like three or four seconds, and that's about it. You know. That's great crazy so that uh we had jeff gordon on the show a couple um a couple shows ago and he said that he felt like that his early success that you had a problem with it and you just you know i think you and you just said that you and dad both had a problem with i had a early. big damn problem with yeah it. oh really yeah man i was jealous really yeah because it was me and dale it was me and dale winning all them races it was it was we were just getting it done and all of a sudden here this young kid comes in and whole different style than us i'll tell you that now you know wow. the, the, dale's Solid black clothes everywhere he went. I'm this kid out of the Midwest with this 
got a big mouth going on, you know, and here comes Gordon and uh, making it and, look and, easy. And he wasn't like making it look easy. Mm. And, uh, and I'm like, man, I'm not liking this, you know. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just, just, you could tell me I was supposed to be more humble, but I wasn't, man. I wasn't liking it a bit, you know, and that's what it was all about. I think one of the toughest things that I remember you going through and uh, look, looking back at your comments during that time was the, the win at uh, the All-Star Race. Uh, obviously, winning the race was great, um, but I think the fan reaction that happened from from that with with spinning Daryl or Daryl spinning himself across the front of your car, however you want to categorize it. <laughs> That's how Bobby Allison says That's it. Right? He, yeah, <laughs> right. He's, he backed into me. Um, <laughs> I, I remember those. I remember comments from you shortly after that, and how how I guess upset or hurt you were by the fan reaction because it was pretty harsh. Um, would where what would you describe as probably the low point in your career? Was that it, or was there another time that I'm not thinking about? No, I think you, I think you're dead on on that one. Probably the low point in my career was uh, was then because I mean there, it, a lot of rough driving, a lot of exciting stuff going on, and I'm in that race and it's it's no points, it's all for the money, and I win the first segment. Second segment, they come in and somehow we well the, those cars had bias ply tires back then, and I'll never forget the number. We had an 88-and-a-half-inch right front tire. We had an 88-inch right rear tire. And so we accidentally got the right rear tire put on the right front. And the car is it's pretty loose, you know, in that second segment. Daryl beats me. But mentally, I know I got the best car. I know I got the best car. Barry Dotson comes across the radio and says, hey, man, we made a mistake. We got the right side tire swapped. He said, just, just drive it. Hmm. I said, all right. I'm sorry. This was after the second segment, after I came in. They took right. him off and saw it then. I went, oh, man, he said, we're just sorry about that, blah, blah, blah. Glad you drove it like that. So then I'm like all jacked up. I said, I know I got this baby right again. I got another shot at winning this thing. So in the third segment, Daryl takes off, and I catch him, and I sail it down into turn three, and it's sticking pretty good. And I get in the middle of the corner, and I slide up, and I get in his left rear quarter panel and takes a spin. I'm like, oh, that's just dramatic, dramatic stuff that happens here all the time, you know. Uh, but, man, I'm telling you what, then they took me put me in the victory lane, and everybody's going crazy and crazy mad at me. Mm. Like, dude, what in the hell did I do to get everybody this mad? I mean, they're really mad. And the pit crews are fighting. I mean, they're beating the crap out of each other on pit road, and all hell's breaking loose. I said, okay. They said, now it's time for you to go up to, um, what do you call that thing up there at Charlotte Motor Speedway? Uh, the Speedway Club. Yeah, the Speedway Club. Time for you to go up to Speedway Club because they always took all the winners up there after That's the right. race. So I got ready to go up there, and they said, man, you can't, you can't take you on a golf cart. It's too dangerous. I go, what? <laughs> so I go, there's an ambulance waiting for me behind the doggone uh, Victory Lane. They put me in an ambulance and drive me around, take me up there. And they walk up into uh, the Speedway Club, and uh, Humpy Wheeler says, and the winner of the All-Star, Rusty Wallace, let's give him a hand. And everybody went, boo. Really? Everybody in the whole place went, oh my God. boo. And I'm like. Okay. <laughs> they put me back in the ambulance, took me back downstairs, and drove me to my house over in Charlotte in that damn ambulance. Wow. I go in there in my house. I go to sleep in this old recliner for a while. Then I went upstairs and went to bed, and the two police off they sent two police officers over there. They stayed in my house that night. <laughs> <laughs> and my daughter, Katie, comes running downstairs and said, Dad, there's, there's two police officers down. What's going on? I'm going, it's a long story. I'll tell you later. You know, so I wake up next morning and tell them all what happened. But it was dramatic as hell. And it, it went on for a long time. Every race, boo. Every race, boo. And finally it stopped, you know. Yeah. But it was like, 
I still don't know to this point what caused that to be so dramatic. I that, agree. I, I found that uh, I, I found that really surprising too because it, it it actually like you spun out a, a fan favorite. I mean, that's d- right. <laughs> DW DW was kind of you know um, I mean he had his fans at the same time, but at the, you know he was often booed as well because he won so many races. But and two years prior to that, we'd basically seen one of the wildest, roughest shows in the nineteen eighty seven Winston All Star race with Dad and Bill Elliott and Jeff Bedine. And I, like you, was really surprised by the reaction because that was sort of the norm for racing back then. You saw it almost every other week, guys getting in each other, moving each other out of the way. Um, but I remember you being pretty beat down or, or, or disheartened about the reaction of the fans. I think, though, over time you sort of earned back that trust and, and fan base. Well, I tell you, one, it, I noticed it changing a little bit. And uh, Alan Quickie, when Alan – got killed in a plane wreck in 1993. I think everybody knew him and I were really good friends. And go to the track that night, Alan gets killed in a plane crash, and then um, I win the race. And I do the reverse Polish victory lap like he did all the time. I was just trying to honor him, you know. And I don't know. I noticed after that people got nicer. They got a little nicer, and then it got better, you know, and Daryl and I have always been good friends. We've, you know, we, we still are good friends. And me, believe it or not, people won't believe this, but Jeff Gordon and I are really good friends. We just we got back from uh, out there in the sand dunes. What well, was about a, two months ago? Me and him and Greg Biffle and Ray Abraham and all of us out there, at a guy named Ron Porat's place, having fun. So we we get along real good. But back when we were racing, man, it was it was tough. It was strong. Those those relationships, we would race the hell out of each other on the track, and and it was possible to get along during the week. Yeah, the other <laughs> it thing, was. The other thing that stands out from that conversation and that story you're told was when you won the Winston, you went home and took a nap. Like you, y'all didn't go raise hell, or <laughs> like Barry, you were. Dude, I was so you had, I was so. You beat. named some of the biggest hell raisers on your on your team, Barry Dotson and Maycar and those guys. Notorious. Yeah, I, I needed to learn better from you when it come to that. <laughs> I really did because I know you're you're good at that, and and believe it or not, I'm damn good at it too. But I've uh, I know. But that particular night, I didn't exercise it for some reason. <laughs> you, I think it was because I was locked in that ambulance all the time. They yeah. wouldn't let me out. I, I I wanted to raise hell and have a hell of a time at that Speedway Club when they oh, took yeah. me up there. That was going to be the start. <laughs> that was going to be game on. It was going to carry on. But, boy, when everybody in there booed me, I went, dude. Sort of, sort of a buzzkill. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, I can understand four or five of them, but not when, like, every one of them. Yeah. <laughs> this is interesting. I mean, like, all those years watching you and Earnhardt and all these guys, I mean, like, I would have never guessed that, you know, what the fans thought about you affected you to the point, but you just said that that was a low point for you. So, like, you do want to be liked. You did. Well, like, everybody wants to be liked. You don't want to get booed. You know, I, you know, you can win all the races you want, like Kyle Bush. He can win, 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 win. I don't care if he wins a thousand races, but man, I don't want to go across there and go, everybody go boo all the time. So, it did affect yeah. you. Hell well, yeah. When you said low point, what do you mean? Like, what, what did it do to you just emotionally? It just, it just. It makes you go up there and want to put your finger in your ears when you get get your name announced. And oh. it didn't make me want to get mean and mad at everybody and I'll show you and just be a jerk. You know, yeah. it didn't make me want to do that. It was just like, man, I don't want to be like that. I want people to like what I do, you know. Did it ever I want the way people you race? I want people to cheer me and boo me like they do Dale Earnhardt Sr. Right. That's what I want. I don't want to be primary boo, boo, boo. Not boo. Or not, boo! I, I was getting, <laughs> boo. Not, not, <laughs> you don't I want, don't want that low boo, man. I want that high boo, you, you know? Don't, you don't want ambulance rides anymore. No, to, <laughs> dude, I don't, I don't think anybody wants that crap, you know? I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. So you 
you um, talked earlier about winning, where you were winning races. You, you mentioned the road courses. How you don't have a road course background? Like you didn't grow up racing road courses. How did you get to be so damn good? I went to Bob Bondurant, yeah, oh. out in Sonoma, California, and I ran and I ran and I ran. And uh, I'll never forget the last day I I was I was about to graduate from my first road racing school with Bob Bondurant, and I'm out there running. And he had Paul Newman out there, and he's teaching Paul Newman too. And so I'm driving a Mustang, I think it was, and, and they were in like an old LTT, LTD Ford or something with some big fat tires and stuff on it, and they're out there running around. And so I had like two laps to go in, in my course, and then I'm done, you know. All of a sudden, I see this old car come behind me. I'm thinking, oh, it's Bob Bondurant, you know, and the guy pulls up in his LTD and just pounds me in the ass, you know, in, this, in my Mustang, you know. And I pull in, and I get out of the car, and I, I look back, and it's Paul Newman. He I mean, he caught me just beating on me. He's a hell of a road course yeah. guy. That Newman was really good, you know. But then, so I went to Bondurant. But then the biggest thing that really helped me is then the Barry Dotson and the guys and Jimmy Maycar and Harold Elliott and all those cats, they built me a full-blown road course car. They really put a lot of focus in on primarily right-hand turn cars. Because back then, people were taking their short track cars and putting the gas tank in the other side. That's all they did, you know. Yeah. Mm. And they treated road course racing as a nuisance. It was like, oh, man, let's just get through this thing. But Barry wasn't like that. He said, I'm going to build a hot rod car. And then it's, now we're going to go test. We load that old truck and go all the way to California. And we tested and tested and tested and tested. Went through every road course uh, ratio. And those were Jericho transmissions back then. Did all that stuff. And when I showed up, I won. Yeah. And before they shut uh, Riverside, California down, I won the last two races. I got a T-shirt. Starts at the very top with Pernelli Jones, Mario Andretti, and all these names, the very, very bottom, it says Rusty right. Wallace, Rusty Wallace. <laughs> then they mowed that sucker down and turned it into a mall or something, you yeah. know? So that was a big deal. But then then it just kind of got the rhythm, you know? And I think that the, racing on bias ply tires on a road course taught me a lot, too. Uh, I call it body English. I could learn how to throw the car. I would throw the car and throw it back and forth and throw it back and forth. And then when the radial tire came out, I had to calm that down a little bit. But it still got that aggressiveness that, you, that I think that you need in road course racing. And, and I just love that style of racing. You uh, went to bon, Bob Bondurant's. Me and Steve Park went to Bob Bondurant's uh, in 1998, 99. I ended up be, uh, winning at Watkins Glen over Ron Fellows, and, and Park won his uh, second cup race, I think, at, um, or his first cup race, I think, at, um, Watkins. at Watkins Glen. So, I mean, that Bob Bondurant school – if you go there, that was a really big deal back then. I'm, I'm sure it still is today, but a lot of guys would go out there and, and you could literally learn how to be a, become a road course yeah, racer. He, he taught you it a lot. It was incredible. He really did, you know. And the only thing I failed on, I don't know if he did this to you or not, did he put you on that doggone uh, machine where they jacked the car off the ground a little bit? No. So it was like a slick track thing, you know. Hmm. I, there's an official name for it. I forgot what it was. But anyway, they take your car and they put caster wheels on the outsides of it. And they lift it and take all the weight off it. And when the car gets <laughs> sideways, you're supposed to control it. Dude, I spun that thing and spun. I, I could not master that at all. I finally just gave up on that, you know. That would be impossible. Close to impossible, it <laughs> seems like. Uh, what made you so good? All right, so you were winning at road courses often and early. You won at Watkins Glen on like your third start, right? I mean, yeah. it, was, it was pretty quick. Uh, so what made you so good at Bristol, though? Like, uh, I think what got me at Bristol that I, I – I love short track racing. That's, I cut my teeth into short track stuff. Winchester, Indiana, Salem, Indiana, big high bank racetracks, you know, and all the stuff in the Midwest. And you got to remember, when I came out of short track racing and Alan Quickie came out of it and Davey Allison came out of it, and even yourself, I guarantee you what I'm about to say you're going to agree with. 
All you went to bed with every night is thinking about your car. You're thinking about your old shock and your spring and your tires, and it's all you're thinking about. You're not having a conversation about something else. Because if I had a conversation about something else, it's going to hurt my racing, man. I had to be 100% into it. So when I went to Bristol, you know, all I was thinking was, you know, how am I going to get these four tires to stick to the ground? I got to get my sway bars and my shocks and my springs. That's all I did. And then, then I went to a short track, and I won on a short track. Duh. Kind of makes sense that my first win would come on a short track. Not at Daytona. Yeah. I don't know how to draft, you know. But doesn't everybody start on a short track? Yeah. I mean, like, like you, weren't, you weren't original in that regard. Everybody starts on short track. Yeah, but you know what? Not everybody is passionate as about wanting their get mechanically about their car. Okay. There's a lot of people that aren't super passionate about wanting to understand every nut and bolt on their car. Okay. And I was. And Alan Quickie was. And Davey was. Uh, taught by his father, Bobby. And you, I tell young kids nowadays when they come to, hey, man, I want to be a race car driver. What do I need to do? I said, well, you need to get in that shop. And if you get a chance to get in a car somehow, you better understand everything about it. Because if you don't, you might go out there and win, but you're not going to win on a consistent basis. Right. You're not going to stay winning. And you, you get yourself in a ditch. Most of these guys got to turn to somebody else to have them pull them out of the ditch. You got to have some ideas. And back then, we didn't have no computers. You got to remember that. There's no simulation, no computers, no nothing. You had to figure it out. I'd come off the racetrack, and they, the first thing that happened, the cruise chief would stick his head to it and say, what's it doing, and what do you want to do? That's how the conversation went. What's it doing, and what do you want to do? Hmm. I said, take that 1,700 out of the right front, put an 18 in it. Take that 350 out of the right rear, put a three and a quarter in it. Give me two rounds of bite, drop the track bar a half inch. Okay, hurry up, get that done. Go back out. And that's what we did. And we kept going out, going out, going out. And I've seen some drivers get so frustrated, they go, man, I don't know what to do. And that's it, you know, but I wasn't like that. Yeah, and right. so when I got in those short track cars, I was always into that chassis stuff, and that I think it helped. Mm. Yeah, one of the things that would people would say about Rusty Wallace was that he would get um, during the race or during practice, Rusty would call for the changes uh, that he wanted in the car. Whereas, you know, even m- more so today, guys come in the garage, park their car, the team, you know, gets the information, decides what to do, what's the next change. They might might already have a list made that they're going to go through. And but Rusty and not a lot of guys were like that back when. You were driving in the 80s and 90s, but Rusty knew every spring, every shock. And so when he was out on the car, out on the track driving the car, he was thinking about what, what it needs. And he was telling the team often, uh, more often than not, what part to change, what mm. change needed to happen. And, um, and, and yeah, yeah, I think you were definitely one of those guys that knew every nut and bolt about their race car. Now, if I try that nowadays, I'd probably get thrown out of the garage, you know, yeah. because – team members now they're so smart and they're so good at what they do and the whole game has changed and uh, i talked to a lot of current drivers and they say man if you get your head in there and you tell them to do this do this that it doesn't fly too good that they they need to do that they don't need you messing it all up because you can't do the same stuff nowadays like i did back then Mm, but yeah. I almost want you to try. I mean, like, just one weekend. Like, <laughs> so, that, that, that was something I wanted to talk to you about. You, I, I believe you said uh, a few times that you felt like maybe you might have retired too soon, like you had a few good years left. Yeah, I, you know, I think that started because did you ever have anybody come up to you and say, hey, man, how much longer are you going to drive? All the time. You did? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that started with me. And, and one guy that's a great friend of mine that, that got under my skin, uh, it was at Indy for the Brickyard 400, was Jerry Punch. And I like Jerry a lot. Great friend of mine. And he walked up to me, ran him, and said, hey, Rusty, uh, he's interviewing me. We're talking. And one of the last questions was, 
how much longer do you think you're going to stay doing this? And I'm like, why in the hell would he ask me that question, you know? And then all of a sudden I get these questions from somebody else, you know. Hey, how much longer are you going to keep on going? And then I'm down to Daytona one time, and Bill France Jr. comes up and said, how much longer are you going to keep doing this? And I'm going, okay, I'm getting all these questions. There's something going on. Because what was going on, the reason I'm getting these questions is because I was on like a 65-race losing streak. No. You know, and they're like, oh, man, everything's going the wrong way. Probably the same stuff Jimmy Johnson's getting, you know, right. currently. Right. And so I got thinking about that. And then I go to the banquet, and I'm hearing these TV guys wanting to start doing this stuff. You know, they start coming up to me, wanting me to go to work and do TV. ESPN was one of them and asked me to come up and rehearse, and I did all that, and they liked all that. And so then I tell RP about it, and he goes, you know what, man, you've accomplished everything you really have done in this sport. I know you want to win Daytona, and you haven't done that, uh, but everything else you're pretty well done. And he said, he said, maybe it is time to start thinking about it, you know. And uh, I said, okay. So then I get this offer from ESPN. I said, let's do it. Let's pull the trigger. Let's go announce it, you know. And so in 2004, I announced I'm going to quit. And I'll never forget, I'm at, I'm at um, Homestead, Florida, 2005. Finished like 11th in a race or something. Pull off the track, and I'm going, this is the stupidest decision I ever made in my entire life. What in the world am I doing, you know? Well, how did I get myself wow. talked into this? How did I go down this road? And I got out of that car, and I was the emptiest I ever felt in my life. And then I go around, uh, the very next thing I do, I go to an IndyCar race because ESPN didn't get the deal to 2007, and I retired in 05, so I had an 06, nothing going on, so I want you to call Indy. So I called the Indianapolis 500, I did all this stuff, and had a great time doing it, but I just felt empty, you know. Mm. Man, it was, and I, I, that took a long time to get over. Right. It was and still... Every, I was standing in front of your building a little while ago, and there's six kids out there with a bunch of die-cast cars. And so I sure wish you'd get back in the car, man. Come on, get back in the car. Why'd you do this? That was a stupid. And the guy looked me in the eye and said, that was a stupid move. And I go, <laughs> <laughs> How long did it take you to get over it? Five years? It took me, no, it took me longer than that. It took Damn me like eight years to get over it. And uh, I, I got a phone call from Daytona. They want me to go to Daytona and run a Ferrari in the Ferrari Challenge. Had 123 cars show up. And uh, I thought I was just going on to do a show. I said, no, man, we want you to go down there and be serious and try to win this Ferrari Challenge event. I said, why do you want me? He said, because you're not driving now. And Ferrari said, get one of those retired NASCAR guys to compete with our guys, you know. And the Ferrari Challenge cars are super fast cars, you know. I mean, they're 200-mile-an-hour cars. I went to Austin, Texas and tested for two days in this Ferrari. Then I went to Daytona. 123 cars showed up. I finished 10th. And I was pretty happy, happy with that. And then I got the juices flowing again. I said, man, i got to get back in this car. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. What year was that? Then I, got, then I got drunk one night with one of my friends, and this is a true story. I, I was up Finally, in, he gets drunk. I was up in the mountains. <laughs> I, I, I was up in the mountains, and I'm sitting there one night, and a friend of mine was there, and uh, there was a guy named uh, Billy Nash. And Billy and I were uh, having some beers, and he said, I have a stupid you getting out of that car. And Childress was calling me. He said, man, he, he said, as soon as I retired, he's like, you need to get back and get in one of my cars. So I called him up. I said, all right, I'm going to come out of retirement. I'll, I'll drive your car. He says, I can't do it. I said, why? He said, I just hired Clint Boyer. I got no room now. Oh. <laughs> wow. So did you ever get an offer that you really considered? No, I never I never did. Was get there that. any rumor that DEI called you at one time to see if you wanted to come drive for DEI? No. No? Never did get that. Wow. Not that I know of, you okay, know. Okay, yeah. But so, that, that's kind of that stuff. You yeah. Know? I think about it all the time when I go to, like yesterday at Martinsville, I see my old car win the race, the two-car wins, and it doesn't win by a little bit. It just dominates, you know? Right. 
was it wins both stages and wins 445 laps. Yeah. I used to call that every time I would win these old races, I get out of the car and I tell old Roger Penske, he said, man, that went good. He said, what'd you do? I said, I popped open a can of whoop ass, man. That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that's what that was yesterday or uh, the other day at Martinsville. Without Dr. Jerry Punch starting the string of questions and without that, what, what year do you think you would have raced to then without the, the pressure Probably, probably, probably 08. So probably, four or five Probably years. three more years. If you remember, Mark Martin and I, we uh, announced almost the same time that we're going to retire together. And we retired, and we went to Sears Point, and Fox brings out rocking chairs for both of us. I remember. Presents that to us on a start-finish line, and, and we're getting keys to the city all year long. We're getting all these accolades and all these cool things. And three-quarters way through the year, Mark says, nope. I've made a mistake. I am not retiring. Right. And then he just pulled out of the deal. Did you look at him and go, hmm, maybe I should do that too? Yes. Right. Hell yeah, I did. I said, well, so I'm out here in this island all by myself now, and I'm retiring, and it's, I still think it's stupid. But I had one of the smartest guys in the world, and that's Penske. He said, don't listen to that noise. You're making the right decision. You're making the right decision. You need to start focusing on those car dealerships. You need to start focusing on business, and you need to get that race car stuff out of your head right now. You've done that. And I said, all right. He's the one that calmed me down the very most. And my wife, Patty. Patty was like, for sure it's great having you at home, you know, and it was just she liked that better. So being sponsored by Miller all uh, most of your career, did you race the other beer cars a little harder than, than everybody else? Yeah, I think I had to a little bit, you know. Because, <laughs> boy, I tell you what, it was like the big three in Detroit. If a Chevy beats a Ford, everybody talks about it. Well, that's Miller guys. They did not want to hear that Budweiser car beat that, that, <laughs> that other car. That's so, true. Yeah, no, yeah. I, that is absolutely true. Yeah. I remember from our oh, Budweiser yeah. days. Our Budweiser guys are the same way. Yes. They, when they looked at the finishing order, they want to know where the Miller car was and the Corcus car was. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I asked that because um, – one of our listeners uh, hit us up on social media and said, it seemed like he always raced you harder than everybody else. And I felt that, too, on the racetrack. Uh, I felt the competition, I think, between our sponsors. And I was racing the field and the, the Miller car yeah. and the course car, you know. But I remember one of, the, one of the first lessons that you taught me. You might not have even been intentionally trying to teach me anything, but I, we were racing at Atlanta in 1999. I had a five-race schedule. And I had never ran on a big track before too many times and had a lot of big track experience and we went down into term one and you were on my door and I almost spun out I'd never been in that situation before where you could take the air off of the side of a car you know and, and my and I almost spun out we, we raced all day long it seemed like that race and uh, I learned so much when you're you know when you're in that point in your career this was 99 uh you had you were in, inevitably put with younger drivers as teammates. Did you feel like you were a mentor? Uh, did you enjoy having teammates, working with teammates, teaching younger guys, or was that sort of you know, kind of on the back burner compared to what you were trying to do with your own career? Uh, look, i got to tell you, I, I'm not proud of what I'm about to say. I was, <laughs> I was never good at that. Yeah. I was never good at saying I'm going to get a teammate and I'm going to teach a teammate. I remember when your dad came up to me and we were children, so we're going to get a teammate. He told me I'm sick of this teammate crap. I said, why? He said, because I'm the veteran, and I feel like i got to be spending half my time teaching them. He said, they're not coming up teaching me. They're not helping me. The, all the information is flowing the other way, and it's draining me. I don't like it, you know. And then my particular deal with Newman, it just got competitive. It just got competitive, and it was just personalities were totally different. 
uh, it got to where he didn't like me and I didn't like him. And that's what it was, you know. And um, I tried to get better. And we, we, we had hot and cold years, but I just wasn't real good at all that teammate crap. I really wasn't, yeah. you know. And I remember talking about – I was talking to Rick Hendrick about it. And I told him one time, I said, man, we're talking about getting a young guy and – and this and that. And he said, hell, if I need a young guy, I'll go find one and steal from somebody else. That's what he said. That's right. He said, I'll go find one and steal from somebody else. You know, he said, this tutoring all this young guy stuff and spending all this money, you know, let somebody else do it. And so I'm, I'm but I am, I, I'm uh, happy that guys like you and guys like Kyle Bush are spending all that money and time bringing these new guys up because nobody else is probably going to do that. I, you know, I want to ask a follow up to his question. Um, when Budweiser took their sponsorship from Hendrick over to DEI to put it on this guy's car in 2000, they put a lot of money just in the announcement. I mean, I remember him talking about the most nervous he's ever been in a race car was that first qualifying for Charlotte in 1999. What was the reaction from your side of the camp? Not just so much that, you know, your good buddy Dale Earnhardt's son is now into the in, in cup. He's now won two championships in the Bush Series and Nazi Cup, but but now Budweiser is backing him. What was your thought to that? Uh, you know, it was a big buzz because Dale can drive a car. He's a popular as hell. He's a great driver, and it was, it, it comes from an incredible, incredible family, so they knew what was happening. They knew that that car, that sponsorship was going to one hot rod car and one hot rod driver. You know, so, hey, it's, it's, it was competitive. You know, there's no doubt about that. And I'm not sugarcoating this at all. I know you know what I'm about to say, man. I said, these, these beer companies, I don't care what they say. They hate each other. Yeah. They don't like each other. Understand what I'm saying right now. Budweiser hates Miller, and Miller hates Budweiser. That's just the way it is. It's so competitive, it's incredible on the field. And I've learned that right away. I said, man, you guys are mean, dude. I, what's <laughs> going on here? I'm in the Bud Shootout in Daytona, and I get a Budweiser guy comes up to me because I'm in the Bud Shootout, and he's super nice to me, and I'm like, <laughs> I said, I don't trust this dude, you know. There's no way he can be nice, you know, because they all hate each other. The guy was truly nice to me, you know, but I was having a hard time understanding that. That's interesting, <laughs> yeah. No, not only did they hate each other, but, like, you know, we learned really quick that even the – like, for Anheuser-Busch, there was dude. multiple brands, and the brands didn't <laughs> like each other. Like, everybody's like, you know what would be cool? You run a Bud Light car. Do you understand? That would be – Almost as bad as running a competitive beer brand car. Like the Budweiser guys paid for that. They didn't want Bud Light on Especially their car. Especially Budweiser, because Bud Light was out selling Budweiser. Budweiser. And that's Budweiser right. Budweiser was like, hell I no. The last Bud Bud Light on that car. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> that's wow. awesome, man. Well, so you had uh, you have Stephen Wallace, your son. He races. Um, I, I, me and Stephen have a pretty good friendship, and he's a lot, th- a lot of great things going on in his life. Still racing, still out there competing. What's he, you know, what's his future? What's he been up to? And how, how are you guys working together to keep his racing going and well, keeping I, him on the racetrack? Good question. Thanks. I, I, I talk to him every single day. In fact, I'll see him in a little bit when I leave here. But he just had a baby. Right. Had a baby. And uh, she's a small one. Her name is Nova. And uh, she's <laughs> so cool. about seven and a half pounds. And Stephen is turned into this incredible fabricator. He's, you ought to see him the things he does in fabrication. It just blows me away. And he's built some really cool cars. He's built this incredible C10 Chevrolet truck right now. So he's going to be selling a lot of custom stuff, but he loves his short track racing. And he's running all the uh, uh, the Fury-style cars right now and uh, the beautiful cars. They're picking a new one up today that the mad scientist over there, Tony Erie Jr. and Sr. have been working on, you know, and they're going to deliver that to us today. So I can't wait to see what this rocket ship looks like. 
But Steve loves doing that type of stuff. And uh, uh, he was up, his, I think the last race he ran was a big race up in Kinley, North Carolina, and he was running second with a handful of laps, and we blew an engine. So now the next race he'll be up, he'll be at the Motor Mile up there, running the race up there. But he loves the super late models. What he really wants to do, he's hot and cold on wanting to get back in the NASCAR because he's having a good time what he's doing. Now he's got the baby, and he's likes messing with these hot rod trucks and his short tracking. But he said, if I ever went back into it, I'd want to do the truck series. He really likes the truck series. He thinks it fits his style better, you know. But uh, he's doing real well. He's really matured, older now. He used to be wild and crazy as all hell, you know, but that's not the Steven you got right now. I don't know if uh, you've heard this story. Maybe you have, but long time ago we used to go out on the lake on Sunday or uh yeah I guess it was Sundays or Mondays anyways we had a race and it was on the west coast we would uh get back from Phoenix at about four o'clock in the morning we'd get right on the boat and go out on the lake at four in the morning and so me and my friends we got a boat full of people driving across the lake sun's just starting to come up we're gonna go to this place called the sandbar and tie up well we get there probably four hours five hours before anyone else and we start drinking, having hanging out. Right around 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I went downstairs in the cabin and went to sleep. Well, I woke up, and the boat's running. And I'm like, okay, I'm going somewhere. I don't know where I'm going. Somebody's driving my boat. I go up, and there's nobody on the boat. I go upstairs, and Steven's driving the boat. And I was the only one on it, me and him. <laughs> And I was like, Stephen, where are we going? He goes, I'm taking you home, man. We're going to Willie's. Willie's is my fa- my stepfather. And him and Willie had become friends through the Pro Cup series when, when Stephen was driving the Pro Cup cars and, and, and so forth. And he's like, oh, I know where Willie lives. I'm going to take the boat back. We're going to put the boat up. I'm going to take you home. And I was like, all my friends that I had on the boat to go there were gone. They left you alone. Left me. And Stephen was your designated Steven, driver. Stephen yeah. was the one. <laughs> Stephen was the one guy that was gonna make sure my boat got taken home I'll and put better. up. And see, from, there's lots of stories I haven't heard that one. You know, so that, he's got a lot of stuff he doesn't tell me though. That was one of the <laughs> nicest things that, that anybody's ever done for me. And uh, he didn't. You know, he he wasn't worried about where the party was going and where everybody else was where everybody else was going. I'll be darned. But uh, he loves so his boats, a, man. He's, you, he's got a new one right now he just built. He built this big uh, houseboat. Oh, my God, he loves really? that lake stuff. Yeah. Man, I didn't so, know that. Yeah, spear fishing boats and all that, you know. Yeah. Put these big old lights on the front of them with generators and stuff, and he goes out there in the middle of the night. That's what, uh, yes. We had bow Je- fishing. Bow, bow fishing. fishing. Yeah. Jeffrey, my, my nephew Jeffrey bow fishes, and he took me out there, and we did that one time. You ever went out with Steven and done it in the middle no. of the night? It's actually pretty fun. <laughs> I mean, you just kind of drinking beer and you know cruising around five mile an hour looking for these you know looking for these these fish to these ugly ass fish right? yeah and there's no sights or anything it's not like you're, you're not aiming really you're just kind of pointing it at the thing and it's pretty funny but cool. uh, I'm gonna ask him about that story when I see him a little bit you yeah. should because I I thought that's that's pretty incredible I mean you raised him right um, what's Rusty Wallace like as a grandfather oh man I'll tell you what I've changed a lot. I really have because now I got four of them. Yeah. My oldest son Greg has got Ian, and then we got Caroline and Olivia, little twins, and now we got Stephen with Nova. And this is something my wife has waited forever for. She's right. been waiting and waiting and waiting. Now she's just all laid up in the grandkids. And and uh, the other day, or Saturday, we we're over at Greg's house for Ian's uh, second birthday, and we got to talk. My phone's full of birthday pictures for little kids and stuff right now. So I'm kind of an old softy right now. I'll do whatever they want. 
Katie, my daughter's getting married in um, in June 15th in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico, at our, at our, down in Mexico. And we're taking all those little babies down there. And that's going to be a ride. That's going to be a trip on the airplane, isn't it? Yeah. So they're going to be throwing them at my, on my lap. <laughs> I'll be holding on to all those kids going down to that airplane while they're all screaming and hollering probably. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've softened up a lot when it comes to that, that's for sure. Yeah, I bet. Well, man, we appreciate you coming on. It's been uh, – it's been a lot of fun hearing your stories, and, and we'd love to have you come back. Okay. So, Rusty Wallace, folks. The man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. It was Thank cool. Had, had a lot of good conversation there. Yes, sir. One of the most important things you're going to do for your health every day is brushing your teeth. Most of us really don't even do it properly. I mean, you think you just get in there and dig around a little bit with a toothbrush. That, that's going to do the job, but quip is going to help you do this properly. It's an electric toothbrush designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. They have a built-in two-minute timer. It pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides, helping guide to a full and even clean. They also have a multi-use cover that mounts to your mirror and unmounts to slide over your bristles for on-the-go brushing. That's blowing your mind, isn't it? Yeah. It, <laughs> it declutters your sink or cabinet and makes traveling with an electric toothbrush easier. Quip does not require any clunky chargers. That's one of my favorite things about it. And it runs for three months on one charge. So, you know, if you get those battery-powered toothbrushes uh, that, that they, you know, you, you got it in your bag, you travel a lot, you know there's going to be a day you're going to pull that thing out and it's not going to work. It's be dead. And there's nothing weird, more weird than trying to brush your teeth without... <laughs> without an electric toothbrush. Once you go to electric, you can't go back. That's right. And That's so right. when you fire that thing off and it doesn't run, ah, it is annoying as hell. And you know you're not doing you know you're not getting your teeth clean. I've never done it. Never, never done what? An electric never? brush. You just really? said about the weird thing. I've never oh, done it. You've never not never, used never used an electric toothbrush. Why not? Well, I'm old school. I can't well, wait to get well, that. That explains that. You need to get on this deal, man. <laughs> you're not you know, you're you're not cleaning your teeth properly there, Matthew. And it, and it looks it. <laughs> that is not nice, Mike. Especially coming from a guy with pristine, <laughs> you white, to, pearly du- teeth. You doubling down on those ads? Well, I just feel like I feel like you know, if, if anybody's going to hurl insults about teeth, it should be somebody with equally. It would bad be teeth. most painful coming from you. Well, <laughs> um, listen, I got one advantage in this game. And this is it's my teeth. <laughs> Ain't nothing else, you know. I got nothing. <laughs> So honestly, though, I mean, you know, three months on one charge, that's pretty awesome. Uh, That's why we love Quip and why they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals, obviously not because of the charge, but because when I go to the dentist, they're always telling me, hey, man, this is you need to use an electric toothbrush. You know, this is going to do a better job than a traditional toothbrush. And so dental professionals are backing these things. They're backing Quip. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash Junior right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash Junior. What's in a refill pack? I guess it's just the it's bristles, the bristles, right? yeah. bristles, yeah. I think that they should name it something else so people know. It's bristle refills or something. I don't know. Bristle batch. Bristle batch. It's bristle, baby. It's, br- <laughs> it's, it's bristle, baby. That's pretty good, Mike. I don't know why I want to put this over oh, here. Oh, Lord. I do that when me and my wife go eat, when me and my wife go to dinner, you know, you got, ex- you got, to, you know, you got the fork for your salad, um, whatever. 
As I'm going through, you know, you got the dish for your bread. As I'm going through the dinner and I'm done with X and Y and Z, I slide them over to her, <laughs> over to other parts of the table. Like, here, your problem. Yeah, now. your, your yeah, problem. I don't need that anymore. You do whatever you got to do with it. That's funny. Well, here, give it. I've got my stash stack over here. So I was sliding my my papers over to Mike. Like, uh, it's a, I'm, yeah, like, I, like I'm your I'm wife. Bad, I put it right I'm under the car. I'm a bad person. Yeah. Maybe I'm that, a bad person. I'm just realizing and I'm not as good as I thought I was. Yeah, work on it. Yep. <laughs> it Rude. Work. Man, uh, what'd you think about Rusty? Love Rusty. Yeah. I mean, listen, took Rusty. Him a while to, took him a while to open up a little bit. I, I was, he didn't want to <laughs> be as honest as I wanted him to be out of the gate over Dad and his relationship, and he downplayed it quite a bit. But then at the end, we got the goods. I think that what we could summarize Rusty Wallace as a person is, is that he... Uh, tries to be a great friend, but there are things that affect him t- to the hilt. And like Jeff Gordon was one. Yeah, Jeff I couldn't Gordon. believe his response here. That and was I, great. You know, Jeff Gordon said that to us in December. Yeah, that yeah, Rusty had a big problem, and and, yeah. it, and it played out in Japan. Once and then we, on, Rusty said, "Yeah, once I we mashed him. the right buttons, he he opened up." <laughs> Yeah. Um, and Jeff Gordon's a hot button. I enjoyed that though, and I, I hope we can get him back on Martinsville Motor Speedway this past weekend. Uh, Brad Keselowski led over 400 laps, more laps than anyone's ever led at Martinsville uh, to win the race in the modern era, mm. your, your favorite era, Mike. Yeah, I, I definitely like to <laughs> delineate between the eras. <laughs> so, and I thought that that was uh, probably, I said on Twitter, that I thought, that man, that's the most impressive thing you're going to see in our sport. I'm thinking, okay, you know, what's the most impressive thing I could see at a uh, mile and a half when you, you know, road courses – uh, Talladega Daytona. Uh, well, I guess when a guy dominates at a short track, because short track racing, uh, arrow's not as critical. You know, power's not quite as critical. And it really comes down to the setup, the team, the driver, the crew chief, the strategy. And so when a guy can go out and dominate like that, uh, is really, I mean, he didn't drive away and lap the field. He, you know, he never really, he had competition on his heels all day the long. Time. Yeah. Um, and he didn't. Uh, get ruffled, uh, you know. He didn't. He didn't lose his cool or make a mistake. He just sort of had a workman's way about it, and I found it to be really impressive. Do you guys find it as equally as impressive? Uh, did you enjoy the race? Well, I've had other Martinsville races that I enjoyed more, but I'm not going to be the one that says that because he led more than 400 laps that that was a non-enjoyable race. I don't think, like we said with Bristol, I don't think you're going to have a bad experience at Martinsville. Mm-hmm. The short tracks just deliver, yeah. and, and I'm going to soak up all the short trackness as long as they can give it to me. Right. And oh, I would, yeah. would love to have more. You know, I'd love to, I would do more Martinsvilles even if I knew that there was going to be somebody dominated. Isn't God. it? One of the things I find extremely interesting is how different the two races are from each other. We have uh, fireworks and, you know, just the wildest stuff that you'll see all year long happen in that final race at Martinsville that's in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And then the first race is typically what we saw this past weekend. At times we've seen more guys lead. More guys up front sort of, uh, you know, taking control of the race with a shot to win than we saw this past weekend. But it's always such a different race. Less controversy. More manners. More manners, yeah. (laughs) There you go. People are more polite. I I find that extremely fascinating. That when we go back again later this year, we're going to see something that is not even close to what we saw this past weekend. It seemed like the race was on for second, uh, you know, more than anything. But listen, Chase gave it a run now. Chase had a great day. 
And it could have been different if there was some, you know, maybe the pit road speeding penalties definitely played a factor in that thing. But, I mean, Brad just spanked them. You know, you always hope there's a little bit of physical contact between somebody and some sort of storyline that comes out of that that maybe carries on to the next short track. Uh, but that was just a good old-fashioned ass woohoo. Yeah. What did you think other than that? Looking, looking back in the history of, uh, of our sport, this is still in the modern era NASCAR, 1973 at the Southeastern 500 Bristol Motor Speedway, presenting sponsor of the podcast, Kel Yarborough led 500 of 500 laps. There were zero what? lead changes. <laughs> and um, they did have seven cautions for 56 laps. That's even more impressive that it, they had that many cautions, and he you know, and obviously came to pit road, and there was no exchange for the lead. Right. Nobody stayed out. Nobody just kind of took the lead and took a gamble. Yeah, he won by two laps over Richard Petty. He had third place, Bobby Allison, five laps now. Wow. Jeez. Um, but, uh, you know, Brad's win obviously was only a few car lengths, but I think comparatively, uh, you know, as in today's NASCAR, that would be similar to what Kelly Arborough did back at Bristol Motor Speedway. And I, I find those I, – I think if I was at that race watching Kelly Arborough leave 500 laps, I'd walk away going, wow, that was I, – I didn't expect to see that. Right. Right? Right. That was really uh, – I didn't expect to see Brad win every stage and win the race. I mean, short tracks just are hard. It's hard to do that. There's too many variables, the contact, the closeness of the racing, the problem, the tightness on pit road, uh, strategy guys taking different tires and so forth. I think um, the lack of cautions took strategy out of a lot of guys' hands. But um, just really an impressive job by those guys. Late in the race, though, Chase Elliott looked like Brad's car was a little tight uh, on that last run. Chase got to his bumper. Gave him a little bit of a, you know, gave him a shot in the back. And, and Chase raced him very clean uh, from a competitor standpoint. I thought from a driver standpoint, he raced him really clean. you got to get aggressive. you got to use the bumper a little bit in that situation. And Chase tried to, tried to do that. And then at the end, the last couple laps, Chase really changed his line, which was yeah. so fun to watch. Mm. Him moving around, trying a high entry to get that straight run off the corner and try to close that gap. And it seemed to be kind of working. And so, uh, you know, Brad even said that he thought maybe – they didn't have the best car and won the race. Maybe the nine had the better car, and just having that clean air, you know, and being out front and keeping those brakes cool and all that would help him over the period of a long run. Um, just really a fun race to watch. I love – I miss racing there probably more than any other racetrack uh, that we have on the schedule. I miss racing there and, and at Nashville Motor Speedway at the fairgrounds, but uh, Martinsville to me is the best experience from a driver – uh, that I that I would have at the racetrack in the car and really enjoyed it this weekend. What about Kyle Busch winning again? He's now uh, at two oh one. Any any thoughts to that? I mean, the guy and he also said he's giving away his grandfather clock. Is he? Who's yeah. he giving to Rudy or? I don't know. So I know Rudy never had. That was his first was, one. If I was going to send him a nice text, this was going to be the week I would do it. <laughs> so just keep that in mind. He said he's giving it away. Going to give it away, huh? Maybe yeah. We should. Uh, yeah, Kyle. I always thought you were my favorite driver. <laughs> <laughs> I listened to it. It was funny. I, I was listening I to, to it on the, on the yeah. MRN. And Rusty, he mentioned this, seeing that number two go to victory lane. Rusty's voice, his inflection, is definitely up a couple octaves with, with that uh, blue deuce uh, out <laughs> yeah. front and winning cool. the race. It does something to him to this day. The only it's thing pretty interesting. That, yeah, the only thing I took away from Martinsville was Timmy Hill. Uh, I don't know if a lot of people follow this story, but Timmy Hill has been racing in, our, in the Cup Truck Xfinity Series trying you know just kind of grinding it out in the back of the field for many years started his own race team uh and took a truck to race in the truck race 
and he sort of he didn't really uh, go into depth about it, uh, but he but he talked about it on social media and and said, hey, we, we, I started my team, I've got a truck, I'm going to the race, I'm going to race, and I was fascinated by that. I, I you know I'm just so curious about his financials, his planning, uh, what he was trying to accomplish. How does he continue this process? I'm actually going to go have dinner with him this week and sit down and talk about that. We're going to have lunch, actually. I just want to know. Like, um, I've never been able to really sit down with somebody and go over the numbers of how he planned to put this deal together. And he's going, I guess, his next race is Dover, per his uh, social media handles. And... um, he gave me a li- very small snippet about this past weekend, what he spent and what he made, and he broke even. And so I'm just so curious, uh, you know, if, as to how he for, – for people that find truck series, Xfinity series, cup series so hard to get into, here's a guy that's doing it. Here's a guy that's got a truck, got a motor, going to the racetrack. He's competing. He started this team on his own. Um, just really interested to hear more about that. Maybe we'll continue to talk about it here on our as we learn more. Well, listen, having Kirk in here last week really made me intrigued over the whole independent exactly uh, teams to begin with, and I yep. think Timmy is another is, is a current example of that. I, there's something intriguing about that from a business standpoint. Yeah, it's got to still make business sense. People, even you know, diehard racers don't do things just to just lose money hands over fist. Yeah. So if even breaking even is the success story or is the end goal. What does it take just to break even? I mean, that'd be fascinating. Well, I want to, I want to sit down with, with Timmy and find out what the goal is and, and how, how does he plan to continue this? Cause I don't think he can at break even. I think that he has to, uh, he has to at some point be able to, to, to make some kind of money, but maybe, you know, maybe it's interesting enough to, to bring him on and have him explain it to our listeners exactly, you know, what his mission is. And I find it really fascinating for some reason uh, to see it happening and playing out right here in front of us in, in, a, in, in our sport today, which is, you know, it's a challenging landscape. Finding sponsors, getting to the racetrack. Well, Timmy Hill's doing it. Looking forward to that conversation later this week, and uh, maybe we'll get him out on the show to, to tell us more about it. Did you just text him and say, hey, I want to talk to you, yeah. let's have lunch, I mean, over this? Well, I met Timmy at the NASCAR uh, Xfinity Banquet, and uh, we were standing out in uh, the cocktail area having a few beers, and I said, hey, man, I just want to tell you, I had been watching him the past couple of years, and I said, man, it's just really impressive, your, your attitude. He knows when he goes to the racetrack that he's not going there to win. He knows that there's a whole different objective. Mm-hmm. He does that with a smile on his face. I've been uh, out on pit road during qualifying, parked next to them, and watch him uh, be a part of that process, and he'll do it with a smile on his face, and he knows what their goals are. So when he said, "Hey, I'm going to start this truck team, and I'm going to I'm going to get a truck, I'm going to go to the racetrack, and I'm it's mine, I'm going to do it myself," I was like, "Wow, you know, it's just another, it's just like Timmy Hill just keeps on keeping on." That's and, the impressive part, though. Right. You know, not just taking a little bit of money and going to some team. You know, yeah. he, doing that on his own—that's a huge undertaking. Yeah. So I I was just so curious as to I just want to know how he's doing it. How's he? How are you doing it, man? Because maybe this is uh, as the bigger teams. The big teams continue to succeed, but there seems there's less and less big teams. There's more and more independence each year. We see it in the Xfinity Series. Uh, we see it in the Truck Series. And as the landscape financially gets more challenging, the independents continue to find ways to make it happen. B.J. McLeod, yeah. 
Carl Long, these guys are still at the racetrack. And where you think, as, as, as we know as big teams at Junior Motorsports, where we understand how challenging it is, it's so impressive to me that these guys continue to go to the racetrack, continue to compete. How, I, and Timmy Hill's starting a team. Yeah. He is creating a team now out of thin air, it seems like. Um, so I'm, I'm, uh, I reached out and said, man, I want to know how you're doing it. I, got, I, I know a few people that are trying to break into the next level, and maybe this is the avenue. You mm. know, Maybe this is the avenue for those guys. And they just, it's just like uh, they just don't know that it's available. They just don't know yeah. how to approach it. And Timmy Hill could be writing the blueprint for, uh, for guys to, to, to break into the, the truck series. You know who did this uh, from a complete business standpoint was Tommy Baldwin. Yeah. Okay. So Tommy Baldwin bought a team during the recession. Okay. So when everybody is saying it's impossible to race now, the, you know, what was this 2009, 2010, right? Baldwin had the wherewithal to go in and start buying his team and building his team then because it was on the cheap. And Baldwin also knows exactly where he's got to finish to make money. And that's all Timmy Hill's doing. You, I mean, I, th- I would assume you'll find out when you go eat lunch with him. But, like, there are these teams. It would be fascinating to know. I mean, I, they don't release what the earnings are anymore for each spot, right? NASCAR doesn't disclose that anymore. But it would be fun to know from a fan standpoint to be able to pay attention to the Timmy Hills, yes. to know where Timmy Hill's trying to get to. It's not first. It's not, it's not even tenth, probably. Where is Timmy Hills trying to get to to be a win for him? That would be fun to know. Whether it was Del McCower or, or, you know, Timmy Hill or – you know, those stories to me, Jeremy Clements, uh, they're, they're, they're as intriguing sometimes as the, the top 10, top five, the big guys. Yeah. What was Smut Means trying to get uh, each week? Was he trying to get in top 10, top 15 when it made, when it made sense for him? It'd be I, wonder, I bet they really just looked at the payout and said this that's is – That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. So each yeah. week it might have changed. Yeah. Of course. No, yeah. That's my point. But, they, but since they yeah. don't disclose those inf- – we don't know where we the payouts are. Yep. You know, so we don't know where they're trying to get. Right. Well, since this week's podcast is presented by Bristol Motor Speedway, we threw a poll up on (laughs) our social media handle, Dirty Mo Media. The poll was, who threw it better at Bristol Motor Speedway? And the options were reward Burton's booties. He threw Mm. those at me. (laughs) You uh, had it coming, too. I did not. I was clearly underneath him. (laughs) I was clearly underneath him going into turn three, and he came down the racetrack. Dale Jarrett threw his helmet 1993 after getting spun out in that. Uh, Interstate Batteries car. That was a good one. He 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 hurled it. Tony Stewart threw his helmet at 2012. Matt Kenseth on pit road, and Rusty Wallace the water bottle. Of yeah. 1995 and 76% voted for Tony Stewart. Wow. Yeah. 76%. Yeah. Tony Stewart. Now, why do you think that is? Is it did he really get enough more into that throw, or is that just the more pop the the one that most people remember? I think it was how he did it. You know, and how like how perfectly it hit the car and oh, yeah. flew off. Yeah. Somebody said that you can't win uh, this poll throwing booties. It wasn't wasn't <laughs> aggressive enough, yeah. I guess. I think that Ward in maybe felt embarrassed after a few minutes. Goes back to the hauler, thinks that was really silly throwing booties, and so he says in his interview, "I wish I had a shotgun or something I could <laughs> yeah. shoot." So I don't think embarrassment was the first thing that came to mind. Yeah, he was so embarrassed. He was so (laughs) embarrassed by throwing those booties. He's like, oh, throwing socks. He's like, (laughs) that'll teach you. Bill of fighting. (laughs) Stewart earned, like, Stewart owned that moment, though. Even after he did it, just, you know, 
riling up the fans. He owned that. Whole he moment. oh, he wound up now. Uh-huh. He was Randy Johnson <laughs> for sure. Hey, did you even realize that he threw something at you in that race that Ward threw yeah. those booties? I looked at the replay that I could not believe how close Ward was to your so car. Close. Yeah, I mean he was on the track. You got to get close if you're going to throw booties. They're not yeah. those things don't have a lot of velocity to them. All right, <laughs> so but man, it was close. Yeah. Well, Bristol invites you. I mean, if you're you're going to be on the banking, so as a so you know you can walk on that apron right to the racetrack and uh, get right close to that car without any real concern. The flatter tracks, I think, like turn three and four at Phoenix, I don't think you'd walk anywhere out there trying to throw something at another driver. Mm-mm. You chase after them into the garage. Yeah, at Bristol, see, if you throw your helmet, it's probably going to roll right back to you. So there's yeah. less boomerang. Right? Self-cleaning. <laughs> Self-cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> you may not be able to use it anymore, but at least you get it back. Well, that made me wonder about um, you know, our own stories of throwing stuff. Mm. Yeah. Maybe okay. Leah actually has a story. No, this probably Maybe. not. Let's see, mean, I'm, yeah, I probably threw stuff at my brother. Have like, y'all thought about your own uh, experiences with throwing things? What did I throw? So I was trying to think about myself, and I couldn't figure out anything. Really? I text my um, I text my wife and my sister, and they said the only thing that I was ever good at throwing at them were insults. Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's uh, worse. <laughs> yeah. Well, I felt pretty good about myself. No. Yeah. Really, um, you had you didn't get you never got in your whole career. You never like threw something. At somebody. Oh, you're talking about as a racer? As a racer, I'd You I'd ever start remember from me that. throwing anything at you? I, you wouldn't throw it at me. He's talking about other drivers. I know. I'm just saying. Have I, Well, we got to clear you first. Have I uh, thrown anything at you? I would imagine have you I probably thrown, have. Right. I haven't. So have you thrown any? Have I thrown anything at other drivers? I cannot remember I ever throwing anything. anything. I don't either, but Interesting. find that. Yeah. Why did we not include in that poll, by the way, Dale I, Earnhardt throwing his shoe at Dale Jr.? <laughs> that would have won. Yeah. Well, Mike, true. have you thrown not anything? Of, Come on, man. That one, the, that one wasn't on camera. True. No, I got it yeah have i thrown anything i i don't recall throwing anything at a person i have and i'm sure we're all here everybody's throwing a baseball through a window right every you know that that one fastball that got that got no 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 just you're you're throwing and uh maybe you're throwing a ball against the wall you're throwing with catch something it gets a little gets 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 out of control i've sent a few golf balls into the parking lot i mean (laughs) You've sent golf balls? Yeah, like I, I don't I'm slicer or hooking them. Or. <laughs> Listen, I got uh, not, yeah. to get back on point. I, yeah. I've got a brother and a sister. I would imagine I have thrown something at both of them. Yeah, and same. I would imagine I've even connected. Yeah, um, still wants you to come out with something. I mean, I guarantee I think, you, I threw geez. like one of my brother's like tractors or even like one of my Barbies. I guarantee you, I threw <laughs> throwing a Barbie. That's sort of like what Ward Burton did at Dale. Oh, it's he threw real tough. Basically, his Barbies at it. <laughs> Embarrassing. But, but but the fact is, is that like the only sib that I would not think through anything would be Dale and Kelly. I, I, I can't see Dale Jr. and Kelly throwing stuff at each other. No. They were too, too lovey. I mean, they're like this, you know, brother and sister. I mean, that's how I see them. Yeah. She was always looking after him. Yeah. I can't believe this, but I actually was w- w- hoping you guys wouldn't ask me it, but I just remembered one time we used to like mess around with rent cars back in the day on the road. Obviously, we don't do that anymore. Uh, and somebody we were throwing stuff out of rental cars at each other. Mm-hmm. Probably something I shouldn't be saying. I I'm the type of person if you mess with me, I like to mess with you three times back. So I was rolling by Sean Pergano, former reporter for TNN and stuff, rolling right by his car, and I'm like, you know what? I got half of this damn strawberry milkshake left, and it's going in. So I threw this thing at his side window, and he had his window cracked open. It was a perfect shot. Went all down the inside of the doors, rent a car. I got the last laugh. All right. Can you see Matthew Dillner giving up half of a strawberry milkshake just to get somebody? That's the surprising part of the story. (laughs) That's good, Matthew.
I'm sure you guys between Ma- Matthew Dillner and Bob Dillner had to throw stuff at each other. He's growing skinny, up. man. Yeah, I don't care. He's, he, you know. Oh, throw stuff? No, he would just injure me. Well, some of our listeners tuned in on social media and, and had a, you know, had a couple good uh, examples of their own. John Douglas threw a desk chair at a kid in fifth grade. <laughs> He still thinks Ooh. the kid deserved it. That's a big item. Yeah. Yeah. Pro That's a pro wrestling move right there. <laughs> yeah. Billy Bradley threw a mustard bottle at his sister when they were younger. He missed her head, and it went through a window. Okay, so similar. Uh, you know, yeah. there's things that go through windows. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I didn't ever think about a mustard bottle doing it. Yeah. But. Wyoming Husker had a prank foam brick. It looked like a real brick. Guys would walk in his barracks room. And he would throw that at them, and and uh, <laughs> they would try to do the Matrix. To, to <laughs> That's until they realized one. it was foam. That would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gab's uh, it's not a not a morning person. Her brother walked in and thought it'd be funny to wake her, wake him up. I don't know if it's him or he. It's Gab's baby. Gab's. I'm gonna say it's a it's a girl. Um. So, anyways, uh, the brother walks in, wakes him up at 6 a.m. and the alarm clock. To the left eyebrow. Ooh. Goodness gracious. Wow. That's rough. That is. But Char- it'll wake you up. <laughs> <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Charla had a bad temper growing up through a butcher knife what? at their sister. And All it's right. stuck in the bathroom door. I'm almost, I almost Scared. feel like we can't, we can't play that one. I know. I saw that in Kill Bill. Yeah. <laughs> she got a, she got real good talking to that day. I bet she did. She said. <laughs> Gee, I hope so. <laughs> Jessica, a few years ago, took her car to get a new transmission, got got to go pick the car up, and the mechanic had been driving it around town. Fast food wrappers all over the floor, mud on the carpet and the floor mats. Wow. Uh, it had a thing of oil in the back floorboard, and she threw that at him and hit him in the face. Man. <laughs> I want to know deserved, the rest of that did, story. Yeah. Right? In yeah. the face. <laughs> Jessica. <crazy>. All right. <laughs> If all he got was an oil can, he got off good. But because in he the face, more yeah, I don't care. You don't, you don't go drive around somebody and trash their car up like that. In no. the face. Well, that's our <laughs> that's our throwing stuff. So Dale's the lame one this week. Since I Leah, know, Leah. I feel pretty lame. <laughs> I don't have really any great story about throwing things other than insults. Hey everybody, it's Dale Junior. It's the Dale Junior Download with co-host Mike Davis. Uh, this is the Ask Junior. YouTube live segment presented by Nationwide. So uh, let's get right to it, Leah. Mike wants to know, what is a bad habit that you have that you weren't aware of before Amy and getting married? A bad habit that I've had? Oh, well, I guess leaving the toilet seat up. <laughs> she, that's the one that Amy reminds me of all the time. <laughs> and one of the funny things about that is uh, when we started dating, and maybe other guys have had this experience, but when we started dating, it was the toilet seat, like leaving the seat up. Then when we get married, it's the lid too. So oh, yeah. I thought, okay, I'm 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 doing great. I got the seat down. I'm always leaving the seat down for my for my fiance. And then when we got married, the lid became part of the whole thing. Man. And now it's like you left the lid up. I'm like, when? What? Yeah. <laughs> Why does that matter? How did it change? <laughs> it's just, it's changed. The rules have changed. So that'd be probably one bad habit. Oh, and uh, next it'll be like a duvet wait, 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 cover. Wait. <laughs> flushing, also flushing with the lid down. Yes, you have to do that because of the germs. Yeah. Yes. So I never, you know, when as a bachelor, nope, never flushed with the lid down. But now it's all about closing that lid and getting it flushed before, you know. And that's that. That's it. That's that's, that's probably um, that's the one thing I do it every day, and 
<laughs> so it's always on my mind. Every time I close the lid, I'm like, I, this is this is how I've been taught to do it now. <laughs> she trained you well. Yeah. I'm impressed. Uh, Ty wants to know, what is your favorite paint scheme this year? Oh, well, uh, still early in the season. We're going to see a lot more, you know, special paint schemes throughout the year. But uh, the one that I still like from even from last year is is Ryan Blaney's paint scheme. Uh, very colorful uh, paint scheme that he has, PPG paints or something, whatever it is. That one's great. But um, we'll, you know, one that I loved last year too was Alex Bowman's Valvoline paint scheme. And, and I'm, he probably will have another Valvoline scheme. That's a great opportunity for a good paint. So we'll see how that works out. Anybody got some favorites? I don't know that I have favorites. I'm still shocked that uh, Blaney's paint scheme is your favorite. I, it just It goes against everything that I thought you liked about paint schemes. Mm. You like clean paint schemes, preferably Simple. white. Now, does his car have white wheels? Is that what it is? The PPG one is has the one white you're wheels. Talking with. Is, it, is, yeah. it, is it the white and uh, blue one, or it's blue, red, yellow, All everything? Colors. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a little, it's a little loud for what it's I. It's a step you would below like. the Peter Max car that uh, Dale Earnhardt. I think it's a good looking race car. <laughs> <laughs> I like Nationwide's paint scheme. I like Alex Bowman's paint scheme, and that's not because they're sponsor of the segment. I think it's a cool yeah. looking race car. I like the one with the dogs on it. Couple weeks ago. Of course. That was yeah. cool. The nationwide mm-hmm. dog, yeah. Yeah. You would. Mandy wants to know uh, any special plans for Amy's birthday today? Well, I, um, <laughs> since, yeah, I mean, we're going to put this out later so I can tell you, but uh, I'm going to go get a card uh, for myself, for Isla. I'm going to handwrite in the card, handwritten letter. Um, Amy told me the other day that I've never given her a handwritten letter, so I'm going to do that. This is live, too, remember. <laughs> yeah, we're, oh, we're shoot, all, that's right. <laughs> we're <laughs> live right now. Well, hopefully she doesn't hear about this. But I'm going to give her a handwritten letter and a card. Isla gets a card to give to her. I gotta, I'm going to have, a, uh, hopefully, a gift from Isla that'll be fun. Flowers, we're going to go to dinner. All right. Yeah. Nice. Thanks. Listen, the card is the best thing in this. It, when we're our age, you know, they don't need a whole lot. They just need the... the uh, I, be, be careful there, because... Oh, she needs a lot? No, she doesn't need a lot, but it's, it's put some thought into it. Well, it's really not about and and I'm not I'm not teaching I'm not teaching you any lessons you don't know, but yeah. to everyone yeah. out there. It's not about the size or the money you spend. It's about the effort. The gesture. The effort that goes into it and the thought just to show you you care. That, just let us know next week how you did. If you felt like she liked it. That's all, all right. I need to know. <laughs> Uh, East County Tire uh, brought up uh, the big news about Gronk retiring. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Great. Um, I, you know, I think the guy, you know, these guys are making so much money today that they can afford to retire sooner. A lot of guys played for maybe two reasons. They love the game, but they're also making a lot of great money or needing to make more money, uh, seeing opportunity to make more money. But now guys are getting paid so much in those in, after that first contract, that first rookie contract, that really that that's enough money, you know, for them to retire at 30 and say, you know, I, I'm good. Uh, and he's won a lot. He's won, you know, he doesn't have that uh, urge to continue to play to chase after a title. He's got titles. Uh, so he's in a situation where um, he has personality, opportunity to do other things, uh, whether it be in business, uh, entertainment. This guy has a whole nother life beyond playing football that he probably wants to get started on. Also, I think, you know, injuries you know he's played through injuries over the last second half of his career he's probably tired of that probably tired of being banged up in his body and he's probably carrying around some of those injuries every day even after they heal up he still has those pains and aches in the mornings when he gets up and uh, I also feel like just I haven't really heard this from players but I feel like that 
you know, we see them play the games during the regular season, but there is so much more going on that they have to do throughout, you know, training camp, mini camps and all that stuff to to keep themselves in playing shape. And I think that that grueling schedule during the off season can be a deterrent. You know, a lot of you as guys, I think when you see guys uh the really really good guys that sort of retire uh, but then they decide to come back. They always skip training camp. You ever notice that? Oh, of course. Yeah, that's your that's your first rite of passage. If you knew if you're successful, is if you're able to skip training camp. Yeah, then you know you're one like, of those. I'll come back and play, but I don't want to do the training camp. Right. I'm all just you know. They negotiate that stuff. They do, and so I think that you know it just shows how difficult that job is. And uh, yeah, that's how. That's well, what for the YouTube audience, we had Rusty Wallace in here a little while ago, and we were talking about Rusty after retirement and how. Rusty, it took a while to come to grips with not racing. I don't worry about that for Gronk. Yeah. I think Gronk is going to be just fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> I sure. don't think he's going to be, man, I miss football. Because uh, Gronk. With that said, uh, Jason Witten decided to come out of retirement uh, to come back and play. And he's quite a bit older than, than, than Gronk. Maybe Gronk goes a year and gets a little rest, gets a little time away, and says, you know what? I actually. I miss competition. I miss I miss playing. I miss the guys, the camaraderie, the locker room. You know, there's going to be all those things outside of just playing the game that aren't going to be part of his life anymore. And maybe he doesn't even know that. And so I wouldn't be surprised if he does come back. I, I can't think it comes back before the end of this next season if they're in, in playoff contention. Listen, That's, I don't know why I have that like little thing that I think it's going to happen. I know it's almost cliche when somebody that was very successful at their sport, retires, and then they, uh, the people just assume they're going to go to TV. I'm just going to tell you, though, right now, Gronk on TV changes the ratings games. For, <laughs> and, sure. and, 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 and games that I could not care less about, I would care about if Gronk was – Has he done TV? I don't know, but I'm just saying. It'd be entertaining. It would be fun to watch. Yeah. It would. All right, it could Gronk be the smash. next John Madden. Because he could do the booms yeah. and the bang. Watch this. Yeah, wham. He gets in there and wham. <laughs> I can see Gronk doing that. You know, that was what was great about uh, Right. You know how color, that, man. Do you yeah. remember in the NCAA, you guys might not remember this, because, uh, but I do. It was 2012, Alabama was in the national championship game, and Brent Musburger makes that comment about A.J. McCarron's girlfriend yeah. at the time, his future wife. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I tell you what, boys, get in the backyard and whoop around that football. That's what you got coming if you're good at quarterback. That will be Gronk any week. Right, you know, if there's if they pan a shot to someone's girlfriend or just a girl in the crowd, Gronk cannot not comment about it. Right, <laughs> that'll be Gronk. I'll watch it. That's it for today. We're That's it. We, yeah. get, we can't end on that one, right? Yeah, I thought that was a good. We're one. ending on that one, I guess. All right. Well, thanks All everybody right. for tuning in to the Ask Junior uh, YouTube Live segment of the show presented by Nationwide. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Keep coming, bud. White flag, bud. White flag, right there. White flag. White flag, everybody. You can follow Dirty Mo Media at Dirty Mo Media on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube especially. Hey, listen, you know, earlier in the week we encouraged people to go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review. So, Dale Jr., Matthew, Leah, I've actually gone and I've looked at some of these reviews. Yeah, how okay? And I'm going to read you a few. Yeah. In fact, Uh-oh. I think I might actually pick a few each week. If people will rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and we put out a link Mm -hmm. on our social media feeds, uh, I may read some. So good and bad, if there are any, but we'll just go here. Kevin CT said, what a beautiful table you now have in the studio. (laughs) Yes. I I like Kevin. I have trouble concentrating with that piece of art in the room. (laughs) Wow. Get you a load of that. I like that one. All right. The Bug 93, great show, but you need to make the interviews longer. 
please and thank you, Matthew. You heard it here first. We got to make them longer. Make the show longer. <laughs> make the show longer. It's pretty long. Yeah, I'm surprised that they be, want it to be longer. It'll be Wednesday before the he's, podcast he's, comes he's out. He's going to make it breakfast. <laughs> Herb two four four four. Fun, enjoyable, lots of laughs. Good to hear old stories of senior, just common folks with money. Lee, I guess they're talking about you there. Uh, uh, common <laughs> folks with money. And then I'll read one more here. Kev L. Jen. Dale, you're supposed to put peanut butter on banana and mayo sandwich. I agree with that. No, wait a second, though. I don't know that I do. He, he didn't remove the mayo. You're he right. added the peanut butter with the mayo and banana. Ooh, I've never tried that. That feels like a foul. Yeah, well, we got to try. I don't. Nep, let's not judge people. That's 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 what people do with the banana mayo. They judge immediately. Let's not let's not go foul. Just good a point. Let's try it. Let's try it on the so show. So you're gonna try a peanut? We'll make a sandwich. But- I'll get half and you get half, and we'll give it a bite. Hey, okay. taste test. And we'll we'll see how it works. All right, Kev Elgin, and um, listen, C Mac the gift. I don't even know what his comment is, but I like his name. He calls himself the gift. So we're going to read his comment. Whether a sports fan or not, this is still a very good podcast because of the way they talk about every aspect of life. Very impressive comments there by C-Mac, the gift. So anyways, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We're looking at those, and I'm going to read a few every week. New episode of The Drop uh, is coming out this Wednesday on Dirty Mo Media's YouTube page. For you gamers, watch Bubba Wallace blast bad guys. Uh, That's what he does on The Drop, so there's nothing like that. Lastly, you guys, uh, I, I was really excited to have Bristol Motor Speedway come and be a part of this show. And so I do want to encourage everybody to, again, think about going to Bristol in two weeks uh, from when we're doing this. I think it's uh, – in fact, I think we're even going, aren't we? Yes. Are we, are we still Me doing Me and you that? are going up yeah. there, and we're going to watch the Xfinity race. It's going to be a lot of fun. Lee, are you going? Am I going to go? We're all going. All right. Except I'm one. Not. Except Matthew one. Matthew is Matthew, not going. He Matthew's going go. to Of course, the, the one time that y'all asked me to go up to the race – so I'm, I'm looking I'm forward loser. to that, and I encourage everybody to uh, take the most of that opportunity. I think it's going to be good weather, too. You can get tickets to this race and the next, the second Bristol race later this season, bristolmotorspeedway.com slash DJD. That's it. All right, Dale, close us out. Also, we have uh, tomorrow big news in NASCAR. The schedule for next season is going to be released oh. tomorrow, mm. um, and there are a lot of interesting changes uh, the one thing that I think would be interesting to find out is not only to see the new changes for the schedule, but also to know that this this is not something they're locked into. This yeah. schedule can can change year to year. They'll tell us more about it tomorrow. Also, um, yeah, we got some odd history for you. Let's hear it. Joe Weatherly qualified 13th for the July 1962 race at Bristol Motor Speedway, but he's a very superstitious guy. And he didn't want to start in 13th. <laughs> so instead, the race officials listed him as starting in 12A. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that weird? <laughs> what? You would think 12, 12th would be 12A, so he'd be 12B. 12B. Right, right, for sure. But he was 12A, so yeah. somebody else was just 12, and he was 12A. Right. Really? Wow. So, also, <laughs> on this date, uh, March 29th, 1959, the Cup Series raced at Wilson County, North Carolina Fairgrounds. And one hour before the race started, a dropped cigarette lit the front stretch grandstands on fire. The fans tried to put it out themselves, but by the time the fire department was called, the entire grandstands had burned to the ground. One thing was important, though, the race. That still happened. Junior Johnson, <laughs> Junior Johnson won. 
Richard Petty got his first career top five finish. Wow. That's incredible. Isn't it? That's what are those drivers are thinking? They're they're wheeling around. There's a freaking grandstand on Didn't fire. Didn't even notice. <laughs> well, that happened an hour before the race. Oh, it was an hour before the race. Yeah. <laughs> they, they're going to have that damn race now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fans, you're just going to stand along the yeah. ashes. Just, just stand there. There was a fire at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Uh, it not a, didn't burn down the grandstands, but well, remember one of those bushes? It was about, what, oh, yeah. 10 years ago uh, yeah. during one of the races, and all that. of a sudden you saw the smoke coming out of the grandstands? <laughs> yeah, it happens. NASCAR race, it well, happens. After that fire, I mean, if you were anywhere but this first row, your, your, your race view sucked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. a tick, that's ticket right. downgrade. <laughs> all right. That's the show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Dale Jr. Download at Dirty Mode Media. Thanks, Mike. Thank Matthew, you, Matthew, Leah. We'll see y'all next week. This bit of badassery was made by Dirty Mode Media. Dirty Mode.